All right. Welcome back to another edition of the Road Dogs podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw. I'm by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Knowing the truth, seeing the truth, and telling the truth are all different experiences. Matthew McConaughey, Green Lights, page 30. I don't think you've ever pulled a more fitting quote for the movie that we're going to discuss, which is 2006 Zodiac. 2007s, you're already wrong, which is a horrific look for you, my friend. I'm 2007, magic of editing. I had a fun experience where I was going through Green Lights yesterday morning looking for a quote. And the thing about Green Lights, for those who haven't read it, is there's like a, a poem or everything like every two to three pages. But most of them are about like the most stupidest things. Like they're well written, Matt. I know you're listening, Matthew McConaughey, so I'm not dissing you. But like <laughs> your topics are like dreams, Hollywood. And I'm like, well, that's that's not bad. But I want some little panache this week. And mm. I saw that, and I was like, whoa, look at Matt. I think, you, I think that's a perfect fit. I mean, yeah, I had to go through like 400 pages to find it, one that was finally relevant, but we did it, so hey. <laughs> God, that dude, he, he writes some stuff, man. Like, there's like whole pages of like short stories he writes in here that are just like whatever. He's got like little like stickers he'll, stat, he'll stick in here, right there. It's just... um. It's a real window into Matthew McConaughey's soul. So, hey. Excellent stuff, Josh. Thank you very much for that. How come he doesn't sponsor us by the Like, we should get green lights just the book as a sponsor. I would promote <laughs> it every week. We kind of do already, so. <laughs> so, we'll be talking about 2007's Zodiac this week. Um, Josh, when did you first see this movie? I saw this movie way younger than I definitely should have. I think I was either 13 or 14. It was when Netflix wasn't, like, a big thing, but it was, like, coming into its own. And I remember I, it was late one night. I was definitely, I think, summer, because I don't know why I would have been up so late. And I saw the, the thing of Zodiac. And I kind of knew a little bit about the case, but not the whole thing. And I was like, I'm going to watch this. And I was so enthralled by it on that first watch. Like, I, I can't quite remember, like... I can't quite speak to how much it like captured my imagination and just like my morbid curiosity of this whole case. But it got to the point where like I was showing this to everyone I could one night, my brother and a bunch of his friends were over from high school. And I was like, Hey, like you guys got nothing better to do. when you're looking on Netflix for a bad movie. It's either like Tucker and Dale die at the end or fight evil or whatever the hell those movies are. And I was like, what about Zodiac? And shockingly, they these the rowdy high schoolers all sat down for three hours and watched no action scenes. They were, they were all riveted by this movie. And I've just I've shown it to like college roommates. I've shown it to to everything. And it's just it's one of the more defining movies in, in my youth that I kind of keep going back to and think about. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't know about you. Definitely, I think it's definitely one of the best movies of this like era too which we'll talk about. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, probably in high school, um, I remember actually our two dads went and saw this in the movie theater together, like two yeah. chads. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and also their review, dog <laughs> review, just, I didn't understand it. It wasn't good. Like, you know, just like terrible, like face value review. Um, but I really remember this book more so than I remember the movie first off. Uh we both, you know, have parents that are involved in criminal justice, law enforcement, whatever you have you. Um, so, you know, true crime novels were something that we both kind of grew up seeing on the bookshelf. It wasn't really a shock. Um, 
So I think that we both probably had that, like you said, morbid curiosity at a very young age. And I really remember this book sticking out with that bright yellow cover, the red lettering, yes. and like just reading that first passage about like that and seeing that somebody and knowing that somebody who was a murderer had written those words and just kind of like that disturbing nature um, really kind of was intriguing, which is scary for like nine year old to be intrigued by that, I guess. But like you said, just that morbid curiosity. Dude, I knew who John Wayne Gacy was before I knew like who Dan Marino was. That was the type of household I grew up in. Yeah, same. Okay. Not, yeah. not good, but <laughs> Yeah. But it's a fact of less. Yeah, exactly. So I think it changes your curiosity from like, oh, what happened to how do people find somebody who does something like this? Um, and that's what this movie's really interested in talking about is how do you find somebody like this? Um, and what does that take away with you? Much similar to Memories of Murder, a movie we talked about. Um, on a previous cast, go listen if you haven't heard it. Uh, but this movie, I think, deals more so with the ramifications of trying to put into order that that is chaos. Something that is not a, a square peg in a round hole. That was something I took away on this rewatch as well, before we kind of like get into like our personal history with the case other than that. But like the more I, I watched it, the more it felt more relevant to me, almost, of like these group of people all looking to find an answer on something where there simply is none. Mm-hmm. We see that so much now with like the COVID truthers, the election truthers, all these like fringe groups that are all like, no, 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 it's got to be this thing and being so convicted of it and what that does to you and the way that your thoughts and beliefs kind of mold you. It, it kind of felt very relevant with the way Zodiac quote unquote kill us Paul Avery to how people were literally dying because of their belief like i don't know like there's something about what a story and what a thing can just sap away from your life without it ever even like touching you physically exactly i agree but i mean i don't know i i chose this movie partly because it's the fourth it's my fourth favorite movie of all time i got a little list now i've been working on it more Hmm. it's up there but i i've always been fast it's high i'm not surprised You, you think it's too high okay well for me yeah. I'll, I'll do the list now real quick while we're here. Hey, give us no your top ten. Us. Okay. Oh, I can't do ten. Uh, ten's hard because, like, five I could feel so certain about how I feel. And then ten, okay. it's okay. One, right. Jaws. The perfect movie. It's the perfect movie. Number two, The Dark Knight. I'm a little Batman boy. You know, I can't help myself. Is it mm. the best movie ever made? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I can't help myself. I saw it when I was, like, ten, and it's stuck with me ever since. It is one of the sure. most defined characters in my life. Three, there will be blood. We'll talk about that later this month, so stay tuned. We'll talk about it later mm-hmm. this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Number four, Zodiac. And number five was oh, Rocky, the first Rocky. Okay. Movie. Okay. I mean, fair enough, list. I'm not surprised by any of that, but I like it. That's good. I have a top five. Oh, well, so you're going to make me do it, but you're not going to come strapped either? I mean, my top five is is ridiculous. I, I don't have uh, one Quentin right now. Quentin Tarantino one, Quentin Tarantino two, no. Quentin Tarantino three. Oh, definitely Death not proof. anything like that. No. <laughs> I remember, I don't know about you though, like, back to the whole like, John Wayne Gacy before Dan Marino. I was so enraptured by, like, investigating this case when I was younger. Like, I'd consume whatever podcasts or documentaries would be. I remember being, like, 14 and holding my phone up and watching the, like, his name is Arthur Lee Allen documentary on YouTube that's still up there. Mm-hmm. And just being like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I'm so riveted by this. And I won't like belabor or general, just as joke, it was more, but like, 
this one case has always stuck with me more than any other. I don't know about you. I agree. It's two events that like I just can't like can't quit, can't put down historically are the assassination of JFK and the Zodiac. Um, those two, I, and like I think the draw that kind of keeps both of us coming back is right. Um, there's a great line said by uh, Mark Ruffalo, David Toshki, in this film towards the end, where Robert Graysmith kind of has a full tilt snap mentally, where he is no longer trying to um, find facts, he is forcing facts. Mm-hmm. Where Mark Ruffalo tells him, The Rick Marshalls of this world will sap you dry, they're blind alleys. And that's what I find myself doing. <laughs> a month or two will go by, and I'll be interested in that spark will occur, and I'm reading about the three tramps, or about Woody Harrelson's father, <laughs> or whatever little loose thread I might be able to find about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Or, you know, we've got we've sent each other probably 10, 15 articles about the Zodiac this past week about, you know, would was this possibly a crime committed by the Zodiac, etc. So it's just one of those... Yes. Yes, it's just one of those things that there's so much disinformation because communication as is so expertly shown in this movie and technology were not you know, what they are today. And I don't think that either of those things will probably ever be solved. So it, it lends itself to all these great theories and it allows people to then fall down those rabbit holes. I think and we'll talk about this more because it's one of my main things, thoughts of like, what is the legacy of this movie? But both JFK and Zodiac are such a fundamental part in the shift of this country away from the 1950s, like, white picket fence sort of things. So all of a sudden, these, like, garish, horrendous murders are sensational news. Well, hold on. I'm not going to push back on that. I just want to say one thing real quick. Let's not, like, discount the 60s either, right? This is the end of the innocence. You know, you've got Manson, you've got Zodiac, all the other crazy crime that's going on in major metropolitan cities at this point. You know, this is where the facade of the peace, love, and happiness starts to finally break away, especially in a place like San Francisco. Absolutely. The one thing I would kind of argue for of why I think these two hold such a special place is so much time has gone by, but we don't have an answer. We know why the Manson family did what they did. We know Son of Sam was a schizophrenic. We know all these sort of things, but there's so much that we can't grapple with about this case, and I think the JFK assassination as well, where people keep studying it because they want to find an answer. It's like, it's the same thing with like so many stories. Like when you know how the story ends, you kind of lose interest in it eventually because guess what? That, that fundamental ending isn't going to change with JFK and Zodiac. You can go into this suspect or that suspect or this crime or that crime and look for something, even like the smallest thing, like that's it. But you still don't know if that's really it. There's no way to know. That human nature of like, I need an answer. (laughs) I need a a definitive answer. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's kind of annoying. What I'm gonna go crazy. And it's, exactly. It's something that I I, I grappled with too. I went to R slash Zodiac Killer this this the week, and I was like, uh oh, yeah. I got Zodiac fever, babe. It's happening. <laughs> the bug's back. <laughs> I'm scratching myself. I'm like, oh, could it have been this guy? And there's no way to know. And that's the most painful part of like going through this whole movie again. It's just being like, selfishly, I want to know. But even for the victims' families that are still alive, they're not gonna know. And so many people know all these intimate details about these crimes, and yet it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that everything's still just a question mark. But on that note, Nick, try to explain this movie in 60 seconds. I dare you. I, I think I can do this one. I mean, it is a little easier. It's it's, <laughs> it's like you get hung up on like, well, there's this guy named Bill Armstrong, right? <laughs> there's this guy He's named Mike Majew. <laughs> 
All right, let's yeah, go. But the, the interesting thing about Dave Tosky, guys, he loves animal crackers. He just loves them. He has to have a pack with him every single day. Like, don't get on one of those rants. Just maybe. Okay, okay, I got this. More clean and straightforward. All got right, this. your timer starts now. Okay. Um, in the late 1960s, uh, Zodiac is terrorizing the Bay Area, killing people, um, usually couples. He sends letters to the San Francisco Chronicle. Robert Gray Smith and Paul Avery are fascinated by the case. They start to lose their minds going down the rabbit hole to, to catch Z. He commits some more murders. We're introduced to Dave Toschke, who is the case, uh, who's a detective on the case. He's trying to catch the Zodiac. He's based off of <laughs> Dirty Harry. Um, he meets up with Robert Gray Smith. They go down some some rabbit holes. Or D- Dirty Harry's based off of him. Um, they go seconds, down. Yeah. They're down a rabbit hole together uh, of craziness, and Zodiac never got caught, and uh, they don't know who he seconds. is to this day. And why? Well, <laughs> I feel like right, the timer is done. You you feel like you're Aaron Rodgers, and like you look at the clock, you're like, I gotta overcompensate, but then by overcompensating, you throw a pick. You're like, <laughs> uh, uh, Dave Toski's based off uh, uh, Bullet and. Um, uh, Dirty Harry. I mean, I, I mean, uh, Dirty Harry and Bullet are based off they they Toski, and you know you're just like spazzing out, and then eventually you're just Sorry. like, uh, no one finds him. He's never caught. Uh, twenty seconds left on. I'm not a good test taker, man. <laughs> he clearly, but this wasn't a test. It was just like, hey, man, try and tell us a story in sixty seconds. <laughs> I mean, you try, you fail, you, you try again. That's all I can say. Men of that brother. Like a screenwriter, James Vanderbilt had been fascinated with Robert Graysmith's novel since he was about 15. Even from that young age, the then-aspiring screenwriter saw the cinematic potential within Graysmith's pages. After selling his first script as an adult, Vanderbilt called out and called to find out who had the novel's rights. When he found out the rights belonged to Disney, he moved away from the ideas. <laughs> this is just like a prime example of capitalism. Why the fuck is Disney in the market to buy Zodiac? Other than to just have it so no one else can have it have it like it's ridiculous <laughs> i mean like so i think this is also a good opportunity <clears throat> to talk about how wrong this movie could have gotten where one of the original ideas i saw before this movie was even development and the writers were attached was like a movie where zodiacs in like 1980s los angeles causing ha- havoc and he's like back uh, that version I, I i read that too it just sounds so like exploitive and like just mm. i was in pervy um one thing to just kind of like piggyback off of that, though, the thing that I loved about James Vanderbilt, um, Josh, you were kind enough to share in the doc this week, the making of Zodiac documentary, which is really cool. Go check that out on YouTube if you're into that kind of stuff. There's a great clip where James Vanderbilt's like, yeah, immediately we wanted David Fincher. It wasn't like they had like a second guy in the in the backup, like coming off the bench. It was like, it's Fincher or bust, which I think is pretty awesome. Which makes you wonder, who do you think would have made a good fit for this movie if not for Fincher. I know we're, we're getting off topic here a little bit, but I'm kind of curious. Sure. Um, so we're in 2007. In De Palma? Ooh, that could have been... Well, he does have in a few minutes. Dahlia, yeah. Um, so I'd say probably De Palma would be my other pick. I wonder if Darren Aronofsky could have done anything with this. I don't know. I'd be kind of curious with that. I don't. I don't think it's the right fit. I think it's a little different. But... I think. I think it would have spent too much time on the madness of Robert Graysmith and not enough time on the Zodiac if it's a Darren Aronofsky picture. Yeah. Uh, regardless, years later, Vanderbilt was talking to producer Bradley Fisher. He brought the idea back up. The two then contacted Robert Graysmith himself and found out that Disney had relinquished the rights after a short bidding war, which really was Robert Graysmith being like, "Well, hey, if you." If you guys want the rights, just give me some money. I got a couple of people I'm talking to, but, you know. Right. Uh, Poor businessman. I mean, hey, like, 
Not just that the, price up. <laughs> the capitalist sleuth Robert Graysmith. <laughs> Graysmith then entrusted the rights to Vanderbilt and Fisher, with the later beginning his research on the case and his writing of the film. This brings us to David Fincher. After finishing the first draft, the two began searching for a director. Despite being their first choice, they assumed David Fincher would pass on the project. And if things had gone according to plan, they would have. David Fincher was originally going to adapt James Elroy's The Black Dahlia and envision the adaptations of a five-hour miniseries. That project never came to pass, opening Fincher up to work on Zodiac. Yes. I would just like to say... You raised your hand like a school child. Let's go. Well, I didn't, I didn't want to kill your momentum, but that's, that's some fun stuff to talk about real quick. Let's just pause and think about this at, at the time. David Fincher is to make a five-hour miniseries. He's getting laughed out of rooms. No one wants that. No one is purchasing it. No one is interested. This man, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, literally less than five years later is going to shape the way modern television works for the next 20 years. <laughs> Just think about that for a second. I even think Zodiac would have worked as a great TV show. too. Like I think there's a way you can almost watch this as like three different three-hour-long episodes. Good. Yes. Where the first one is a crime movie, or a, I think a crime movie is the best way to put it. The second episode would be a detective story. The third one is a psychological thriller. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're spot on, and I think this movie does have like kind of three distinct chapters. There's the first chapter, then we get the you know montage of the skyscraper building, time passes, and then I would say probably the the third, maybe final one would be the movie premiere. There's like these little chunks that like kind of break up the movie. It is interesting too while we're on. I do think there's also a thing of like three different main characters throughout the movie. I think the first half, the Zodiac is the main character. Hmm. We're all revolving around what he's doing. The second half is Mark Ruffalo's movie, Dave Tosky's movie. And then finally the third movie is Robert Graysmith's movie. And they're hmm. all working on what each other does to the other one in a really fascinating way. But it is almost ironic that this movie comes from a failed miniseries because I honestly think if this was made today, it would be a miniseries. Do you agree? I don't think that it would be. I don't think anybody's paying for it with almost three-plus-hour crime movies anymore, no. I think it's going to Netflix, it's going to HBO Max, or it's just a flat-out documentary. It's just a movie feels like, which is so awesome. Yeah, I know. Like Even the modern landscape of TV in the last like five years, there's so many shows, and I'm like, why wasn't this just a movie of unbelievable i think is a similar story about a true crime story that becomes a netflix series fleischman is a trouble is the show that i've started watching which could have just been a movie made by woody allen 30 years ago it's so it's so funny because it's just i don't like would you be interested in a zodiac tv show if this was the like let's say this movie never happened and they're like david fincher they're gonna make a tv miniseries do you think that would have worked better at all I think this movie is, is, we've talked about this, I think this movie is Fincher's finest achievement. I don't, it's not my favorite Fincher movie, I don't think it's his greatest movie, it is his finest achievement. To like think that I would have to like maybe see a, maybe a little bit diluted version of that in a TV show, I, I would be kind of sad, I, wouldn't, I would still be just as interested, but I think this is the definitive Zodiac work, like as far as the case goes. Yeah, there's been a couple podcasts and documentaries I've watched, like I said, and nothing really comes close capturing, I feel like, the essence of the story because everyone kind of has an angle. And I think this movie does too, but it's a lot more subtle about it in a way that this movie's just like, look, everything that you see, basically true. It's all, We're only showing you what happened for the most part, and the few things we exaggerate aren't that massive. 
Yeah, and to kind of go off of that too is you can tell that from the beginning of the movie, it's not based on a true story. It says these events are based on actual case files, which is what James Vanderbilt was pulling from when he was writing the script. So there's really not a lot of wiggle room for, you know, drama. Just something that David Fincher is not interested in capturing. He hates earnestness. He wants realness. He wants raw emotion. And to that end, Fincher, Fisher, and Vanderbilt spent the next two to three years interviewing everyone involved with the case, from police detectives to retired police detectives to victims to victims' families to anyone that could have been a witness. They did the works. Basically, the pre-production of this movie is like, let's try and solve Zodiac while we try and make a movie about Zodiac. Which is yeah. <laughs> I mean, like we were talking about with the documentary, they're going through the case files, matching shoes that were made in 1968 to 2007, matching dresses made in 1968 to dresses made in 2007. They're, I mean, the attention to detail in any feature movie, this especially, is just, it's finite. It's just like to a T. My favorite one, I think, is how in, in real life, Michael Bajot, the first victim we see in the movie, he was wearing three different kinds of sweaters. So the costume department went out of their way to make one sweater look like three with the different layers of one poking out of top and one below. And then they mentioned the dialogue, so it's like, all oh, fits. Yes. And, and, like... <laughs> and then later on, when they're like talking to the Chronicle, they mispronounce his name, which I love too, because Thank that you. probably yes. really that probably really happened, right? They probably did that. Yes. It's so great. <laughs> Fincher believed that they owed this realness and authenticity to the survivors and the victims of the Zodiac to tell the story as truthfully as they could, and that while Grace Smith's novel launches a valiant attempt, it convicts someone posthumously and is so definite for a story where so little is. Which brings me to the question that I think I've been most fascinated by since I rewatched this movie. Is this movie successful in that attempt, Nick? Mm, giving you a definitive answer as to who they think the Zodiac is? Well, do you think there is a bias in telling this story, this version of the story, I guess? I think, I think the movie is quite clearly steering you in a direction as to who they want you to think the Zodiac is. Um, but it does, <laughs> it completely washes that away at the end when you, you kind of get that realization with the facts of like, you know, all the forensic evidence didn't match for Arthur Lee Allen. Um, so he was kind of ruled out. Just kind of. I disagree with that, honestly. Go ahead. So I think this movie, in regards to the bias, suffers from two things. One, it's based off Robert Graysmith's book. I know they did the case files, but really, it, it, Robert Graysmith's the main character for a good reason. But number two, James Vanderbilt's entryway into this case is Robert Graysmith. It's the book, and it's the idea that at a 15-year-old mind, you are so susceptible and impressionable as to what is true and what is not true. I mean, we all know that. I mean, we're partly talking about this movie because we watched it when we were so young and it left such a lasting impression. So I think Vanderbilt watching and reading this novel or reading this novel from a young age, where that book is very much, hey, it's it's Lee Allen. I think that either consciously or unconsciously works its way into the script. And that's not to say this movie's bad, but getting to the point of, I think, the ending, <laughs> the last five minutes, I think, tell me they think Arthur Lee Allen's a killer and nothing else really matters. You, so you disagree with that? Well, I th I think that that's impression the movie and Robert Graysmith are trying to give you. But I think that the movie is very careful at the end to then spell the fact that forensic evidence ruled Arthur Lee Allen out of the Zodiac crimes, which it gives you. It, do it doesn't leave that fact out. It's not manipulative to the audience in that sense. You're getting manipulated by being, you know, obviously watching a movie 
regardless every single time, but they're, they're, they're not manipulating fact to the point that we cut to black in credits. They give you the fact that, you know, Arthur Lee Allen was ruled out as Zodiac because of forensic evidence. Not ruled out, but was, you know, they couldn't bring any charges because he was well, ruled so out. They also show you, <laughs> they also show you that the last, the last five things that we see, or the last three things we see, Graysmith and Allen meeting at the Ace Hardware store, and having mm. this knowing look of like I know who you are, whatever that look is supposed to communicate. Number two, we have Majot identifying Alan as a person who shot him and Darlene, which then basically implicates him that he's a Zodiac. And then we have the credits saying before authorities could charge him with the crimes, Alan died. The investigators have refused to rule out Alan as a suspect despite a partial DNA profile not matching, and that Alan is still the prime suspect despite everything with that. And then there's the final thing of since Alan's death, Graysmith has not received any strange calls. It's the movies I thought in the last five minutes almost acting like a political candidate that can't come out and say what they're feeling because they know they get blowback, but they've left enough breadcrumbs to be like, hey, here's what we're trying to say. And the implication of all those last three things is that like, hey, we believe that Arthur Leon's the killer, and that's kind of what we believe, and I think it's good that they show the, the DNA thing, but then they kind of throw it out immediately. Yeah, I think also, too, an, upon reflection, um, the scene where him and me at the diner super late at night the door-to-door scene 50 feet less less than 50 feet door-to-door that whole sequence right there kind of throws out all the ambiguity too but you know th- that's evidence whether it be circumstantial is is debatable but it is evidence right so it it does present itself i don't ever feel like overly steered i never feel like i have like my parent like with their hand on top of my head saying look this way right the movie is very subtle that way and you know and it also adds to the mystique in the confusion of the case with like the rick marshall aspect of it which is another you know big suspect in the zodiac cases if you've read anything about it which is kind of it's a weak play because it is kind of built rather quickly and that is the only confusing part of the movie and then they throw it away with the basement scene of like, yes. well, I wrote those posters, Mr. Graysmith. So right. then it's like, well, then it couldn't have been Rich Marshall's handwriting, which was the one thing we're gleaming onto. And then the movie immediately veers back to Alan as like, oh, 50 feet, you know, sort of thing. It is it is a flawed part of the movie. This movie is not without flaw. I mean, it's, it's pretty damn near close, but th- I would say that that part of the movie is a little bit flawed. And I, I should also say this as much as I'm kind of criticizing it in this regard. Nothing they're doing is unfounded. Like, the evidence against Alan that they present in this movie is true. It's all objectively what happened. But I do think they very much go out of their way to discredit or just flat out not bring up a lot of other suspects that could have surfaced by, I believe, the last timeline we get is 1978 or something like that, I want to say, is the last thing that we see. Fair, but remember, we are talking about a two-hour and 38-minute movie already i mean how many more suspects can we fit in here we gotta we gotta stay with the with the people who are relevant and closest to the case i guess and the also thing to add is that one of the things vanderbilt kind of prioritized when talking about in the press of this movie and even beforehand was we're telling this story through two different people's lenses for the most part robert graysmith and dave toski and the (laughs) one suspect they were always interested in the most was arthur lee allen so it does make sense why we have such an emphasis on allen it just feels a little bit like we're manipulating some true things with an underlying implication the entire time to me. But that's that doesn't make the movie worse, you know? No, it doesn't. And if you read anything about this case and stuff like that, uh, almost anyone who's involved with it in law enforcement says that 
Lee Allen is the one suspect that they cannot quit. He's the one person that just does not go away when they talk about and look into the crimes. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense why. <laughs> you know, they can't quit him. I, I, like Jake Dunnall says, I can't quit you. It's true. <laughs> you could have been talking about Lee Allen instead of uh, Heath Ledger. You know, who knows? <laughs> Um, to that end, the three of the of the trio that we talked about, Mel Dave Toski, during this meeting, Finch told the retired detective that remaking Dirty Harry or fictionalizing the story was the furthest thing on their mind. For those who haven't seen Dirty Harry, there's a couple, you know, interested or like hinted in the movie. Dirty Harry's just Zodiac, but like weirder yeah. and, and dumber. Like you see this movie, I think, more recently than I have, Nick. So like, tell us about it. Dirty Harry? Yeah. Like oh, so um, it's so there's a Scorpio slash Zodiac thing. They there is, the yeah. Press and police. I would say everything involving Scorpio in Dirty Harry is is a direct ripoff of uh, the Zodiac crimes. <laughs> um, the character of Dirty Harry is kind of an exaggeration of Dave Toshi. Dave Toshi was a great detective and wasn't like somebody who was, you know. There's a joke made in the movie, like, "Did you do you really holster your gun like that and stuff like that?" Which he did, but like. He wasn't this roughshod cowboy, shoot first, ask questions later, that he like is kind of depicted in Dirty Harry. He was very calculated. He was a smart man. Um, Dirty Harry's a, a good movie. It's okay. That's Clint Eastwood playing Clint Eastwood. But uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Really cool script. And, and of course, Dirty Harry also ends with the suspect being a, a clear, concise thing and then him being shot. And it's like, we got him! Instead yes. Of, <laughs> there was yes. no like immediate relief for Dave Tosker or anyone. And the climax of that movie is, is pretty lame on the school bus, too. Just hasn't aged well. Wow, they even brought the school bus into it. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Goddamn. Uh, their research was so extensive that Toski learned things about the case from the, them. Literally, David Fincher educated him on things about the case because David Fincher was that much of a nut. The production also hired Mike Mageau and Brian Hartnell as consultants of the film. It's because of this the only murders we actually see in the film are the ones who have surviving witnesses, which I think is a great touch. Cool. It is a great touch. Because no one really knows what happened at those other crime scenes. It's unfortunately, everybody lost their lives. That is a really, really smart, smart, smart choice. Another note I had about that was the perspective of the violence. Um, when you put violence in the third-person perspective, a la we are watching the person get killed, and we are able to see the killer as well, it adds this like detached visceral feel that makes violence so much more disturbing it's almost as if you are watching someone tell you how the crime happened okay he walked up to the car he had a silencer on his pistol he fired 12 times and like it's 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 scary it's it's scarier than any horror movie you ever see might be one of the most disturbing movies i've ever seen in my life i can't watch the lake berryessa scene anymore at this point I've watched this movie probably four to five times, maybe six, and I just can't. Unless I'm with a group of people that haven't seen it, and there's no way where I can just be like, hey, we'll just fast forward. If I'm watching this movie by myself, I can't do it anymore. It is so well done that it just it scares the hell out of me of like. He ducks behind the tree. Oh. It's it's terrifying. Like I, it's it's terrifying. The moment when he starts stabbing Hartnell. Is so upsetting, but then when he goes to Cecilia and she starts squirming around and just this bloody murder scream, I I can't do it because it is so, it is so horrific. 
and, it's and awful. that's what makes it so more horrifying is this is what happened pretty much beat for beat. Brian Hartnell has said as much and the dialogue down to that is pretty much exactly what happened according to Brian Hartnell. So hmm. it's staggering, but it brings us to the question that I think is worth talking about, Nick. But like when you tell a story like this and you're, you're a creator more than me, at least you're a film school little boy. <laughs> when telling a story like this, especially one kind of like so publicized, how obligated do you think an artist should feel to authenticity? Um, so this is a really kind of complex question, kind of nuanced yes. to answer. Earlier this year... We talked a lot about this. Yeah, are we talking about winning time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, earlier this year, you and I had a... Pr- not I wouldn't say like an argument, but like a debate back and forth of just like, w- look, what do you owe... What do creators owe authenticity? And I think when you're dealing with loss of life, violent crime, you know, anything like that, for the out of respect for the victims' families, you either A, I think, pick that off screen, or B, do it in a way that is real and authentic. The sense that you're not glorifying murderer killing your loved one you are showing the horrific nature of chaos and violence that somebody inflicted upon the loved one instead of the reverse i ne- i never feel like i'm in the sh- you know how like in a in, in some you know in seven you kind of like you feel like you're in the serial killer shoes sometimes in this movie there's none of that right it's all about the pain and the suffering that of the of, and, and of the victims right and not glorifying the violence committed there's almost a way where Seven and Zodiac are kind of united in this idea. The killer kind of wins in both of them, where, you know, Seven, the guy gets his, his justice, he gets killed by Brad Pitt, which is the last victim. And then in Zodiac, Zodiac's obviously never caught. But the way they go about telling that, they never show, like, the gloating letters of Zodiac post, I think, 69, of, like, Z37 SFPD0 or Z100 SFPD0. There's mm-hmm. never like, oh, wow, he got away with this. It's more like he got away with this and this is what it's done to people. You yes, I mean? it's not this big, like, massive manhunt. Um, and the <laughs> the investigation part is quite boring. That's what a real investigation is. This is it isn't, you know, rain-sopped streets and guys jumping out of windows and firing shots down an alleyway. It's... An sitting office in an guy. office, <laughs> yeah, it's it's sitting in an office with a, the you know, magnifying glass, going over handwriting samples. It's driving hundreds of miles between counties just to make one, you know, get one case file or make one fax, make one phone call, talk to one witness. That's true police work, and that's what I think is so great about this movie. Is everyone, all the police officers in this movie, feel like police officers. I don't know the gentleman's name, um, who plays the sergeant, I believe, in Vallejo. He is amazing in this movie, uh, too. Elias Codius, who plays Molinex? I think so, yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Yes. Or there's there's Ken Narlow, played by Donald Logue. Yeah, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's the first one. I think you're right on the head about this, and I think the difference is severity. You know, no one cares if you say Magic Johnson had 50 points against the Sixers when he actually had 30. It doesn't really matter much. Like, they have a platform as well to speak out against it, to be like, hey, that's not what happened. Check, you know, whatever. The victims in Zodiac don't really have that power. Neither do their victims' families. You know, Mary Michael Mageau and Brian Hartnell live their lives in security. 
Cecilia Shepard, Darlene Farron, Paul Stein, and David Faraday in Betty with Jensen didn't even get that chance. So, mm-hmm. like, whatever the show does in Winning Time, it doesn't dictate how their real-life counterparts legacy will be remembered. Like, I, I like Winning Time, but ultimately when I think of Magic Johnson, I think of what he actually did, not what the show tells me he did. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Zodiac, I know so little about these people, unfortunately, that the only way I remember them is through this movie in this case. And, you know, that's a tragedy, but it's just kind of how things are, unfortunately. So I think Fincher owes it to them to kind of give them the most fair depiction he can. Our relationship to sports is kind of asked with lore, right? We <laughs> Wade Boggs drinking all the beers on the plane, whatever it may be. Michael Jordan flu game. Like, there's a whole bunch of lore in sports, whereas crime is facts. Crime is, is you know, definitive. We don't have any gray area. There's no, like, well, I was there, and I'm not quite sure if it's that if that's exactly how it happened. It's like, no, there's only one surviving victim, so I think we're going to be able to narrow down whose story is true. And not even facts. Like, we know what happened word for word, moment for mm. moment. Like, there's no, like... Gray room. And that's one of the things I appreciate about Memories of Murder More is that it's also based on a true crime. But Bong Joon Ho realized he didn't know enough about the case or just didn't want to touch the case completely because he doesn't, for whatever reason. And he just make an adaptation of that case. You, it doesn't have to be based on it, it can be inspired by, and you can tell mm-hmm. your same story. And I feel like if you can't have the responsibility of telling a story fairly, especially one like this, then just create a different one. Like, there's no shame in it. One of Fincher's big inspirations while making Zodiac was Alan Pakula's All the President's Men. In both stories, Fincher saw, quote-unquote, the story of a reporter determined to get to the story at any cost. So it was all about his obsession to know the truth. This is one thing I've always loved about this movie, which we kind of just hit on. Not about the murder. The only, all the murders are done within the first 30 minutes. That's it. I, there's the um, Kathleen John scene where he picks her up with the baby. Which is highly debated. It's highly debated if that was Zodiac or not, yeah. Yes, the move. The majority of the movie is all about the people that fall victim to Zodiac, literally, physically, and mentally. And it's a two-hour, forty-minute movie. Like when you basically are shelving two hours of your movie just to that, it tells you what the priorities are immediately. I also think the relationship between Avery and Graysmith in this movie is expertly done, and does remind me a lot of the relationship between I forget the two characters' names, of course. Thank you very much. In all the presence, just two two great men that you know changed American history, Nick. Ah. Yeah, you're the journalism major. You, I knew you would know it. (laughs) Get on my level. (laughs) I do see that relationship between the two of them quite a bit. Hmm. Venture, however, did keep one of his trademarks: a demanding perfectionist directional style. For instance, there's a small moment where Gray Smith tosses a notebook aside in his car. In the documentary of the making of this movie, you see that it took 36 takes (laughs) to do that before David Fincher was pleased. And it is literally Jake Gyllenhaal sitting in the car with sunglasses on, just tossing a book 36 times. I read a thing that Robert Downey Jr. started to pee in bottles and leave it around the set as protest for the long hours. I don't know how true that is. Oh no, I think this is part of the I think this is part of the Fincher thing. If we can I can kind of segue into this question you have here about like why yeah. does Fincher do this? I think this is part of his thing. I think this is how he gets his the performances he does. Whether you like read about the like production notes for <laughs> the social net- network and Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara running that scene like a hundred times, has to be faster, has to be faster, has to be faster. <clears throat> Whether you read about Jake Gyllenhaal basically cracking on the set, 
but I also think that was huge because it gave us Jake Gyllenhaal that is the best. We'll get into that later, I'm sure. Uh, and you hear about Robert Downey Jr. saying he wanted to literally garrot Fincher on set. I think that yes. is part of. I think that's part of his thing, man. I think that's how he gets the performances. He he gets. I mean, these characters in this movie are supposed to be one matchstick away from burning out completely, and I think he does a great job of capturing that. By the end of this movie, Jake Gyllenhaal looks exhausted, and that might have been quite real. So I think that that is part of the the shtick of his thing. I also think that there is absolutely no reason that you need to do ninety takes for any damn scene. Like it's by the way, it's a two second insert shot five minutes into the movie. Like you would mm-hmm. you could blink and miss it, honestly. Yes, and um, two things right there. Fincher is the master of the insert shot. Happened so many times in this movie, whether it's like a sample of handwriting, a piece of bloody T-shirt cloth, the door with the like the X symbol on it, the newspapers. It's just in, he's he's the master of the insert. Um, but this to me, like part of Fincher is where over time I've started to kind of like almost like Christopher Nolan slide on his work a little bit like we talked about with Kaufman I mean all of the females in his work are extremely problematic this one included like Chloe Sevigny is given nothing to do besides just kind of be a nag to Robert Graysmith um like, Robert you've got to stop and he's like I can't <laughs> exactly so I mean go back to Fight Fight Club go back to Seven go back to any of them but uh, go back to Social Network. He reminds me a lot of Hitchcock in that regard, where actors are not people; they are pawns for me to use for my movie. And <laughs> I just don't—I uh, don't necessarily think I align with those ethics. But he makes great movies. And I hope not. I, I really hope <laughs> that you're not like I view my actors as pawns and I play them around the chessboard as I please. <laughs> but also, somebody who 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 makes you know like uh, same thing with Alfred Hitchcock are entertaining. Yeah, ma- art entertaining masterpieces that are like very perverse and weird, but are great movies. So, I guess ultimately, my question is because I've never directed something the way you have. Is it this belief that like the more takes I make someone do, just the more natural the dialogue will sound out of their voice, or is it just like I have a vision of what I see in my head, and right now you're not bringing it to life? Um, man, this is a whole I mean, other podcast. Speak for him. But, like, this This, is what I love about this movie. Right, okay. Um, So this is my strategy whenever I walk on set. I want, first and foremost, first and foremost, everyone to feel comfortable and everyone to feel like they can take any risk that they want. I'm all for improv. I'm all for trying stuff out if we have the time. Um, You know, it really depends. Sometimes I was on a set Friday night. Get a pan, one shot, it looks great, and you move on to the next setup. Sometimes it takes eight tries. Sometimes the lighting's not right. Sometimes somebody trips up, up on, trips up on their line. It happens. So I really think that it depends on what the scene calls for. But I, th- the the main thing is is making your actors comfortable to make those choices. Be like, hey, I love what you're doing right now. Let's go a little less big here and then build into that. Right? It's it's all about the communication. And when you're just kind of walking up to someone and be like, all right, let's run it again for no real specific reason other than you want to see it again. Uh, I think you kind of can grind some gears pretty fast. And that's to say, like, Fincher, as much as we're making him out to sound like an evil person, when you watch them making up, like, they're laughing while they're doing the 36 takes of, like, the no Sure. He wasn't on there, like, you need this right or else I will fight. Like, he's not a he's not a dick. Not a maestro. But he's it, not a maestro. Yes. No. But he is obsessively compulsed to, like, get what he wants out of it. Right. And, and, and I guess that's my thing, right? Is like, it's not necessarily... It's not necessarily 
like what you do is how you say it, right? And then that's sometimes the right. best way. Every single time in that, at the end of those, you know, dailies or whatever they're doing in that documentary, he's saying, please, okay, I just want you to build up and drive a little bit faster in your frame, please. Like, there's no, like, we need to do it this way and that way, and, and then we're going to do this. But, like, I have seen some stuff where he seems pretty cold and, and callous. Um, but I read a thing where he's just said that he's not interested in capturing Ernest. By, te- by take 10 to 15, I can strip them away from that and get what I want. Which <laughs> worded kind of strangely of like, yeah. I can get what I want. I don't, I don't yeah. want you to be earnest. 10 to 15 takes. <laughs> Just to start. That Downey, Downey said he understood why Fincher was doing it because he understood gulags. <laughs> I, we, we need like a Robert Downey Jr. like autobiography written by him soon. I really would love one. And Jake Gyllenhaal was also very frustrated by it, but since kind of understood Fincher was kind of just trying to get the best out of him, which I think he mostly does too. But we should also add that caveat here. I think, can I be honest with you? Yeah. I think out of all of the big characters, and he's the one we spend a lot of time with, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is the worst performance in this. We'll talk about this momentarily. So, so shelve your, shelve your notes there, but I, okay. yes. <laughs> okay, cool. During all production, right. David Fincher used Final Cut Pro because he found that dailies were always disappointing. And now I want to go into a section called, man, David Finch needs a life. Someone, someone helped the guy out. I think he's unmarried. I'm going to, I might have to fact check that real quick, but I, I think, think he's divorced. Dude. Yes. Let's see. No, he's been married since 1996 and he's got one kid. Wow. Good for him. All right. Never mind. I apologize. Sorry, Mr. Fincher. He needs a sports team. Like we got to get David Fincher a fantasy, like football team. So he can devote some more energy to it because here's some notes. What the Lake Berryessa murder scene with detective Carnarlo played by Donald Logan, the film Fincher began feeling the dirt. And just like rubbing his hand across the, the whole area. He then turned to Narlo and said, This isn't where they were stabbed, Reinhardt and Cecilia Shepherd. It was over there. Fincher was correct. <laughs> you know why he knew that? No, I don't. Is it the way the sound Because the part, uh, no, because the part where they were laying had like grass or something. Like I, I, I saw that. Like that man literally looked at those photographs enough that he knew where the grass patch was that they were laying. Which also means he's like, I know it's been forty years or whatever, but I know that, that grass is still there, and there's no grass here. We should also mention that David Fincher is from Marin County, so like he said yeah. that growing up, Zodiac was like the ultimate boogeyman for him. Yes. While the actual like Barry has to scene again. David Fincher also noticed the foliage had changed. I mentioned this on like the Memories of the Murder episode, but I'm going to bring it up again. Dude, dude, it like, needs to be brought up again. I, I want to bring this up every show now. Honestly, I might just I might just throw it in there with after the McConaughey quote. Uh, David Fincher noticed the foliage had changed. It's since 1969. To correct that, he had trees flown in and planted on the spot. The exact trees, not tr- not just trees. Let's be specific here. Like it was a certain pine or whatever that he had flown in and placed in the exact spot where they had been cut. The down. best part of the making of is watching this helicopter coming with these trees like it's the right <laughs> yes. in apocalypse now but it's just these trees that are just gonna like put them with cement and be like well there's there's our shot cool let's, let's move on cool I'm glad <laughs> you can stand behind that for two seconds and then we get we're done the prop newspapers weren't actually props this is not david fincher but still property master hope Parrish and her team remade the issue of the chronicle word for word picture for picture grab celluloids and that way if an actor actually opened up the newspaper they could just read that version of from that paper. Just lunacy stuff. I mean, like <laughs> I, I, I could, I didn't wasn't that attention on like my college work, let alone just like a newspaper and a film. I know, right? That's crazy. This is my favorite quote. Fincher had this to say about the film's recreation of the setting. I suppose there could have been more VW bugs, 
But I think we show is pretty good representation at the time. It's not technically perfect. <laughs> even then, even after the fact, he's like, well, could have had more VW bugs. VW bug, the uh, the worldwide national car for American serial killers. Yeah, apparently, man. Just like pop that one and let's get a red one for Bundy. Uh, this was like a good time to also mention, Nick, you wanted to talk about this, how David Fincher digitally recreated 1969 San Francisco. Uh, yeah, so around this time was when digital like CGI was really starting to look good. I think, personally, you have right before the big Marvel boom, so a lot of money's getting dumped over there to make things look great. Um, the San Francisco Bay does not look like that anymore. I've been there. That whole entire area is gone. Um, so that opening, like, eagle eye pan as we zoom across the bay, that is all digitally rendered. Um, and that's why this movie came out in 2007 and not 2006, which I wrongly stated at the beginning of this podcast, was because they then spent time um, recreating San Francisco skyline for one shot. That is less than five seconds of David Toshi looking at the uh, crime scene where the taxi driver gets killed. That is all fake behind him, all digitally rendered. And it is absolutely incredible. Uh this movie cost a quadrillion dollars. I think it only made 33 against like a $70 million budget or something. Uh, and almost, I think, a large portion of that went to the special effects house. Um, 66 to $85 million uh, for a budget. Yeah. So, and a, a large swath of this movie was shot on digital. Uh, the only opening sequence that's shot on film is, is when the fireworks are going off and the car's driving down the street. The rest of it was shot digitally, which was... A pretty big challenge at the beginning, like Josh said, Final Cut Pro. Um, editing on that was not as simple as it once was. It's not a point-and-click program to begin with, so you get the early rudimentary versions of that. Uh, it's just <laughs> adds a, just a complete layer of difficulty to it. Well, one of the things that I found really fascinating in the research of this movie on the digital effects, all the blood of this movie is a digital effect. Yes. None of it is like, oh, we got like our spray packs or whatever the hell. Because David Fincher knows who he is. He was like, well, I can't have them like, I can't have them clean up blood from then after 20 takes is then we'll just be here all night. So I'm just going to get it however I want and have the blood spray however I, I need it to be. Which, great call. I don't know why more people don't do that. It seems a lot, of, a lot more, more effective. Yeah. Well, that's because people don't do 50 takes. <laughs> that's true, because not everyone's David Fincher. Yeah, Mick G is yeah. not over here like, well, guys, we got to do digital effects. Because when, <laughs> I, when I shoot Kate Beckinsale in this like 10th Resident Evil movie, yeah. fans of Zodiac have one person particularly thanked for the film's casting. One of the first people David Fincher talked to about the casting process of Zodiac was Jennifer Aniston. Mm. Insane. Absolutely absurd. Why are, why are these two friends? Why are they hanging out? Why are they hanging out? <laughs> This is the oddest, like, friendship. But it also, like, it makes me think different about Jennifer Anderson. It's like, oh, okay. Like, she behind, like, a bunch of huge casting decisions that I just didn't really know about for decades? <laughs> she was like, yeah, Dave, I think this Jesse Eisberg kid could really have something with you if you want to go for it. Yeah, right? She's just like, her in PTA, she's like, mm, Philip Seymour Hoffman would be great <laughs> as Lancaster Dodd. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you could really write Daniel Plainview for uh for for Daniel Day Lewis here. Yeah, like it's like what are the chances of those two being friends? Well, also in my research, her he's close with Brad Pitt. Obviously, they work on Seven together. Benjamin Button. They've done a couple um beer commercials together. I want to say him and Jennifer Aniston divorced in two thousand five. 
which means he's having like wine parties with Aniston in at least 2006 or like early, like post divorce. Cause him and him and like Jennifer Aniston were on the outs for a while. So like he must've been buddy, buddy with them. I like how you have the inside scoop on Brad Pitt and Jennifer Anderson split. That's pretty great. Well, you know, I was, I was, she contacted him. He con, she contacted me about the divorce. Right. So. Uh, yeah. You were a shoulder to lean on. You're just a shoulder to lean on. Yeah, five years old, I was like, Jen, it's okay. Sometimes it happens. Love doesn't always work. And this was strange, too, to me, because then Fincher and Brad Pitt go to make um, A Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Brad Pitt producing The Killer, which is, like, David Fincher's upcoming movie. So, I don't know. Maybe he's just really good friends with them, and, you know, he doesn't pick a side, which is pretty cool. At least he remains neutral. Well, he's like, he's like, Jen, you can consult me on Zodiac, but I am Switzerland in divorce proceedings, all right? I just want you to know that. I don't want to hear your like bad talk Brad. I also like the two movies she brought up that she had worked with Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo on the good girl and rumor has it <laughs> rumor has it a light adaptation of the sequel to the graduate. Just come on. Yeah, as do, you do. Let's do better. <laughs> so Fitcher asked her who she liked working with. As Nick just mentioned, she brought Jake Gyllenhaal, who she worked with the good girl and Mark Ruffalo and rumor has it. Fitcher kept both names in mind during the casting process. and thought the double-sided coin energy Gyllenhaal brought to Donnie Darko could make him a good candidate for Robert Graysmith. In preparation for the role, Joan Hall met with the real Graceman that studied his manners and behaviors. Nick, you want to talk about Jake Jones' performance in this movie. Now's the time. Yeah, I mean, Jennifer Anderson bringing up The Good Girl was funny, but like Donnie Darko is a movie that I think of has similar energy to this. There's He's on the edge of it at this point. There's a boyish, like, a shucks quality to Jake Gyllenhaal that I just don't like in this role. Why is he obsessed over it immediately? Like, is it the same reasons we are? Like, or is it, it just seems really weak and contrived. He's just instantly engaged into this case. And like, I, the, the reason I glommed onto to try and like justify it, I guess would be, well, this guy's looking for, looking for something that will fulfill him and bring purpose to his life, but never portrayed that way. And it doesn't really get deeper than the surface level. Like, there's no reason why Robert Graysmith is attached to this case other than he just is. Nick, he's always liked little puzzles, remember? Yeah, it's just, it's really weak character development, which is which is something that I do think Fincher struggles with because I don't think he's interested in that necessarily. It, it just, it's a performance to me that is one step away from him kind of filling his own shoes and becoming the actor he will for the next 10 plus years. He has quietly a lot to do in this movie um, in terms of just like being our main character, I would argue, but just like who his character is. He's a divorced single dad when we start. He's neurotic. He's never in on the joke where I think we need Paul Avery to be the comedic relief, but Graysmith has none of that. They're always laughing at him. I like to go to the library, uh, read books. Those are both the same thing. thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's always an outsider to like everyone. And yet, in the later half, he becomes a family man. He's a Boy Scout. He's like a, a stay-at-home dad. It seems eventually, who a private investigator. Yes, yeah. Like, he's got a lot of hats to wear in this movie, and I don't think he pulls them off convincingly. The more unhinged the gets, the more I buy him in the role. But the the the, the shift is so stark, like you said. Yeah, it just it didn't work for me, and it never has. I think he's the the weakest part of this movie, and that's coming from someone who absolutely loves Jake Gyllenhaal. I think he's an incredible talent. I just don't think that he had he had aged up enough and kind of filled the shoes 
to, for this role. I don't think they make the Graysmith shift work entirely, but I think they make the narrative shift work completely perfectly. I think there's see, always a whimsy. Go ahead. I see. If I disagree. I The only downfall that I think works the best in this movie is Paul Avery's. It's the best downfall in the movie because I buy it. Because it, it, there's the seeds are planted from the very beginning. We can tell that he's a loose cannon. We can tell that he likes to have a, a tipple or two, and maybe at one point that might take over his whole, that might take over his whole entire life, which it most certainly does. But all the seeds are planted there. I buy that. Like he, he, let himself be, you know, eaten up by this case. There's no real seeds planted. It just, it just doesn't work. It's like it's, it's almost like. I feel like taking me and putting me in that movie as Robert Graysmith. You know what I mean? I don't have the ability to be Robert Graysmith because I'm not, I don't have those chops. It, it just, it just feels. get a digital recut of this movie with you as Robert Graysmith. It just, he, in, a, in a movie where everything seems so perfectly cast in place, he is the one thing that to me feels out of place. So the only thing I would argue against is that there's almost a whimsy in the first minute or two after the murder scene where we first meet Robert Graysmith. This is in my, in my notes. As we follow Graysmith, we see his last moments of like innocence almost, where we're watching him like make uh, lunch for his son. They're brushing the teeth together. They're doing all these things together. He's like, all right, well, I love you. Get on the bus. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to work. And like, it's all normal. And even like the dolly shot of the letter getting in the bin and then going towards the editor's office, it's like a very workplace like normalcy to it. And then I think we have this great shift where once that letter arrives, everything changes. You know, that night, that same night, Robert Graysmith, Jake Jonah's character, rushes his son almost to put his pajamas on when they get through the door where he's like, hey, we'll go put on your pajamas. And then he puts down his books about ciphers, which is showing us immediately that he's going to push his family aside for the ciphers. And that when he would used to take the time to brush his teeth, he now shoes this kid away so we can kind of work on Zodiac because it just has its claws to him in it. And then he does it again where I think they're on the couch watching the, the Melvin Belli show. And the kid's like, why is he saying that? He's like, shush to the kid to be like, hey, like, I I hear you, but I'm, I'm more invested in this. And then well, we have family photo albums. We have Zodiac photo albums. Seems to me, the I, 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 only thing that I would argue about the, the TV show sequence, I thought it was more to me that he was trying to like, have him hear the part where he's like, and I'll kill all those people because he's like, oh, yeah, he just to turn it off at the end. Yeah. So to me, it was more him trying to like keep his child innocent and not like <laughs> have him hear that. But I do, I do see what you're saying. It's a very subtle way of showing his descent into badness and not just telling us he's crazy. But I think he has a little. He's got a lot to do, but too much or too little to work with in the first half, and then in the second half, he really does turn it up a notch. He's terrific. In the basement sequence, at um, I forget his name's house, but like in the the dining diner sequence at the end, he really does come on late, but it does take him a while. I, I agree. Yeah, that scene, I think it's Vaughn. Uh, Vaughn's house is is yes. marvelous. Yes. And then for Ruffalo, even though Fincher wanted Ruffalo to play Dave Toski, he wasn't actually interested in the role. It wasn't until after meeting in which Ruff Fincher told Ruffalo that the script was being rewritten that Ruffalo became interested. Like Joan Hall, Ruffalo met with his real-life counterpart and conducted extensive research, read all the books, did, studied the, the case files, and really sunk his teeth in. Mark Ruffalo is the best performance in this movie. I'll go ahead and say it. I agree it. with you. It will talk and about it's, it. I don't even think it's really close. 
I think Avery gives him a run for his money, but I think he's in it too little to qualify. This is the performance to me that that like I think of Mark Ruffalo when I was like, who is this guy? Like back back then, uh, he was he had been in movies and he he was he was known, but he wasn't like a household name at this point. This is the movie when I saw it, I was like, I want to see everything this guy has been in. Is going to be in. We're skipping ahead a decade or so, but when you look at what happens to his career afterwards, Shutter Island 2010, The Kids Are Alright 2010, Avengers 2012, Foxcatcher 2014, Spotlight. Great in all those. All of yes. them. Zodiac is the launching off point from like the indie darling of You Can Count On Me to like Mark Ruffalo, major Hollywood heavyweight. Now feels like a good time to shout out the other performers in this movie. I just have a list here of like people I want to pop off on. We don't have to touch on all of them. Just like, goddamn, this is an ex- exceptionally cast movie. Robert Downey Jr., John Carroll Lynch, Anthony Edwards, Donald Logue, Dermot Mulroney, Elias Cody as Casey Jones from, from Ninja Turtles. Let's go. Chloe Sevigny, Philip Baker Hall, Brian Cox. Staggering amount of contenders for, for the uh, Colonel Tom Park Award this week. <laughs> and all of those people maybe have less than five minutes of screen time apiece. It's got to be less than 10, I think, for most of them. If not, yeah. you know, yeah. All of them absolutely bodied the scene. Like, the line, it was just a great first date, said by Chloe Sevigny, has stuck in my head for years. <laughs> the great read. For what it's worth, Gary Oldman was originally going to play Melvin Belli, but Fincher said he didn't have enough girth. That's a complaint Nick and I have never heard. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Coming in hot. For the box office, Zodiac grossed thirteen million dollars its opening weekend, only being beaten by Wild Hogs. That's the movie where Tim Allen, Martin Lawrence, John Travolta, and William H Macy are on the run from the biker gang, with Ray Liotta as the head of the biker gang. Just wanted to shout that movie out. I remember it very vividly. A little shout out for Wild Dogs too, or Wild Hogs as well. Um, Katie and Wild I, Wild Dogs re- too, Road Dogs. <laughs> Recently, uh, Katie and I went and did a Breaking Bad tour in New Mexico in Albuquerque, and uh, we went by the house that is Tim Allen's house in Wild Hogs. So, whoa, so, yeah, from that masterpiece. It was a Wild Wild Hogs <laughs> trip instead of the Breaking Bad tour. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> who would have known Wild Hogs such a huge hit back then? Regardless, Zodiac made $84 million at the box office, a figure which sounds high in 2002, but was lower than expected in 2007. Here's what I'm going to call a depressing quote. Fitcher said, even with the box office being what it is, I still think there's an audience out there for this movie. So sad. I think that that the, the shelf life of the DVD and the streaming has really benefited for this movie. This is a movie that people have seen, I think, later. The, and down the road, I think people think of Fincher, they think of Fight Club, they think of Seven, they think of Social Network. This is kind of one of the like forgotten masterpieces, I think. This movie's legacy has outlived its shelf life, but I, there is such like a, a sadness that David Fincher has to be like, I think we, we still have an audience for this in, in 2007. And this is before Marvel comes out and just obliterates the whole notion of what is a movie nowadays. Well, I also think Fincher quite clearly proved that there's an audience for this when he made Mindhunter. You know? Yes. This is this is the workout session for Mindhunter. Another just masterpiece thing I, I would talk about way more if we had time, but I won't. During its theatrical run, Zodiac shared the screen with Wild Hogs. I think I think that might be one of episode one thirty three. One one episode one thirty four. <laughs> I'm gonna have, I have a time a pitch for that one. 
300, Ghost Rider, Black Snake Moan, TMNT, let's go, Cowabunga Brother, and Shooter. What a, what a ragtag cool. group of movies. You know, I think it's pretty cool that your dad was out here just a cinephile. Went and saw Ghost Rider and Zodiac in the theaters. He saw Ghost Rider with me. I remember seeing that theater. I saw it with you Wait, guys. Yeah. Satan? Satan's in the Marvel <laughs> Universe? What's going on here? I know we've said this in another podcast, but I'm just going to say it again. Somebody please make a cool Ghost Rider. I know. I know. Get Boyd Holbrook as Johnny, Johnny Blaze. Let's go. Ooh, I like that. There you go. Uh, speaking of 2007 movies, is this one of the best movie years of all time? I don't know how you want to approach this, Nick. I have, I have a bunch of movies here. Do you want to talk about just like what it was, or do you what do you want to do with this? Um, this is this is what I would like to do. I think that we should read a couple of them, you know, like okay. the the big main ones. We've got No Country, There Will Be Blood, Zodiac, Assassination of Jesse James, Eastern Promises, Superbad, Michael Clayton, Juno, Three Hundred, Gone Baby Gone, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Ali Wilson's War, Knocked Up, American Gangster, I'm Not There. Those are all 2007. Sweeney Todd, Alvin and the Chipmunks, dude. You forgot about the one that I listed there at the end. I apologize, yeah. Who could forget that We're going to have to do a Wild Hogs and Alvin the Chipmunks special one day. <laughs> um, feature. I think that this is a great movie year. I think the problem that people have with it is, we've talked about this before, and it's funny how we got here through the Monsters, Inc. podcast originally, is this is a time in America that is very complex and dark. And the work reflects that. Not a lot of happy endings in that bunch right there. (laughs) A lot of bummers. But they're all incredible movies. I think that it might be pound for – it's the best movie year since we've been alive. I love 1994. I think there's some good movies in there. But there's too much Hollywood mainstream stuff that I just don't think translates to today. Whereas I could watch There Will Be Blood today and and find something new and find something relatable. You're going to be watching it soon, boy. You best get ready. (laughs) I think this is my favorite movie year, and it's not that close. I mean, like I, I said at the top of the show, two of my favorite movies ever are in this year, and that's not even counting the comedy classics of, of Superbad and Hot Fuzz. Or I know you didn't mention it, but Stardust is one of my favorite movies from this year, which is a nice little like fantasy movie. There's just so much goodness, and I think to that point of the sadness, think about the, the movies that we get. We get No Country. Maybe that woman just gets murdered because of a coin flip. There will be blood. He murders Eli with the bowling ball. Assassination of Jesse James. Boy, he's real upset he murdered someone. Zodiac, man, they never caught this guy. <laughs> Atonement, wow, they're all dead. <laughs> Ratatouille, ah, this dude, this dude really sucks. Gone, baby, gone. Morgan Freeman, you're arrested. Like, there is yeah. never, like, yeah, this is pretty well for everyone involved here. Yeah, no, it's definitely, a, it's, it's like, it's a bleak time <laughs> in American art. I want to shout out a couple other movie years while we're here. 1975, we got Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, Nashville, Monty Python. You pumped yeah. Barry Lyndon? What is that? Yeah, Barry Lyndon's a masterpiece. Woo! Go watch it. This is that's one of the saddest things. <laughs> Just you'd be like, yeah, Barry Lyndon! I mean, um, like, you're the only other person that like I know who's seen I it know. and I can talk about it with. <laughs> well, that's because you kind of forced me to, in all honesty. But like, you know, sure. <laughs> we have 1994, Shawshank, Pulp Fiction, The Santa Claus, The Forrest Gump, Leon, The Lion King, Miracle on 34th Street, The Crow, True Lies, The Mask, Natural Born Killers, Clerks, Ace Ventura, Ed Wood. 1999, I'll just had a couple of these. There's way too many to count. Fight Club, American Beauty, Eyes Wide Shut, Matrix, Green Mile, Sixth Sense, go on and on. Yeah, I think, again, 
when you're talking about, in my opinion, I, I go back and watch 1975. There's a lot of great movies from that year. But the 290 years, I mean, outside of Pulp Fiction and maybe Clerks, <laughs> you can probably keep just about all those movies. My relationship has completely changed with American Beauty, Fight Club. Still love The Matrix and Eyes Wide Shut out of 99. Magnolia is a great movie from 1999. Um, I just think this year is like unfuckable. Whoa, look at that. That that quote, I like it. I just don't think we're going to see anything rival 2007 anytime soon. No, we're not giving auteurs that kind of budget to make those kinds of movies anymore. Nor is there like enough people who are willing to go that distance with it. I think so many of the people that have and show promise get swallowed up into the machine in a real sad way that there's no room to be like, oh, my, like, this is David Fincher's, what, fifth movie? I want to say one, two, three, four, five, sixth movie. If you're on your sixth movie now in Hollywood, you've at least done a franchise movie or you're getting roped into one or you're making a sequel to one or something. And there's just no room for that. No, like, I think once upon a time, making a sequel, making a Marvel movie, whatever, would have been seen as a lateral move. Now that is completely reversed, where if you made a There Will Be Blood or a Zodiac, that would be considered a lateral move. Like, well, I mean, I don't, how am I going to market this? Like, this guy's not likable. It's just two people in a room talking. Like, it, the, these, the, the whole entire ratio has changed only to that point we got two seventh the avengers in this movie and that's not <laughs> counting jake gyllenhaal who will then become mysterio or just like i'm sure a couple other people popped up in the mcu by now but like it's infested every single thing now where like i honestly can't go back to some of these movies and be like oh that guy becomes that superhero and maybe that's just because i like superheroes and i follow them pretty hard but like right it's just it's just tough well- it's the same thing that we were talking about earlier where um, you know, this is the last year before Robert Downey Jr. plays Iron Man for 20 years. This is the last year before David Fincher is basically Netflix hands him the blank check and says, make whatever you want. You know, it's, it's the sign. It's the sign of things to come is really what Zodiac is. A sign of a bad things is probably, is this a good or, first, or bad first date movie? Maybe some ominous portenses if you're like, yo, babe. Nice this is a bad. This is a bad first date movie. <laughs> it's long. Not a lot of stuff happens as far as like action to keep people engaged, just unless you're interested in the case. I think this is a not a first date movie. This is you've been in a relationship. This is a you've been in a relationship movie. Because <laughs> in drive, you can at least be like, "Oh man, like that's that's a cool set piece, babe." Like, what did you think about that? Zodiac is just like, man, uh. That's I'm sorry. Huh? <laughs> Do you refer to all women as babe? Is that your thing? That was a good movie, babe. Like, what was that? I hated that. First off. And second off, well, <laughs> I think Drive's a better first date movie because... It's even better than the first date. Drive is a better first date movie because, like, Ryan Gosling is in it. That's all you need. Like, <laughs> that alone gets it, gets it across the line. But, I mean, first date, if you're throwing out babe, I think... I think that date's gonna I end pretty maybe, quickly. <laughs> Hello, madam, is what I'll, I'll I'll go with instead here. Um, it's like, madam, I can't believe that they they found this evidence of this this bloody shirt. Wow, it's crazy, really bad. 
sticking with Fincher and his demanding schedule, how many BLTs do you think Mark Ruffalo ate? I have no way to answer this, but there's a scene where he goes into a, a diner and Bill Armstrong is eating a BLT and he goes half of it to Mark Ruffalo and he just devours it. Also takes the tomato off, so it's just a lettuce and bacon sandwich, which is true. So how much only way to eat a BLT? <laughs> uh, I think he, you know, actors in scenes chew the food, but they usually don't swallow the food, so they oh. don't get full. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how many BLTs he actually ate, but he probably chewed up at least twenty. No one Fincher. <laughs> well, if he did thirty six for like, let's drop a book down. Yeah. I imagine Ruffalo inhaled a lot of lettuce. Like that's probably still working his way through his system today. Like that <laughs> it is. In the background was probably just cooking him those those BLTs that he could then take the tomato out of. Guys in the kitchen, were like, geez, another one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I read eighty three million dollars of the movie's budget was just for the BLTs. Honestly, like probably. Robert Graysmith versus Paul Avery in a game of pong. Who wins? There's there's the small scene where they're playing pong in the background, and I was like, man. Two different game gamers right here. I'm not sure yeah. who will take this belt. Well, Avery's got a lot of time on his hands. I think he's probably a master of Pong. <laughs> See, but the difference is, Gray Smith has kids. He might be playing Pong more often. That's true. That's true. And sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this. Probably not, seeing as how you play sports. But, um, you know, like you're playing basketball, and you like you hit your first three shots. You're like, all right, I'm, I'm feeling good. It's like one of those things where, you know, like lack of ability or lack of like presence or wherewithal of your abilities sometimes allows you to perform better. It's okay. Just say it. Just say it. Like, <laughs> let's, not, let's not beat around the bush here. Just say, I don't know how to play sports. You, 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 you play sports like you have two left feet, but I still love you. <laughs> Thanks. Really, it means a lot. See, I think it's, I think it's Gray Smith is my take here. Cause Avery just has it on the background. It's just playing, which means he's not active. Like he doesn't come to the scene. He's like, yo, let me, let me get my, my, my game on. So he at least bought the system, but he's never played it. I think is what I, I'm going with. I don't know. I think, I think yeah. P- Pong dude. That was the baseline for video games. That was revolutionary. <laughs> Let's not go down a Pong rabbit hole. <laughs> Zodiac fever, Pong fever. Let's go get all the different addictions going on here. I am addicted to this topic, though. The 2008 Oscar do-over. There is so mm. much to talk about here. You give me a little look. Let's, let's, let's hear it. There's really only one movie that can get pulled out of this, I think. Okay, so you want to go to just go to Best Picture immediately? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay. we, we can, so we where can do you want to start with this? Where do you want to start? Um, do you want to start with editing? Or, or... You start it, babe. It's your, this is your movie. Okay. We'll work our way up. We'll build okay. the momentum here. Actual best editing nominees from that year. I ha- we haven't seen all of these, so full full you know awareness and, and context. Born sure. Ultimatum, Diving Bell into the Butterfly, Into the Wild, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood. I think that is total BS that Zodiac wasn't on for editing. I don't know what the rules were back then. If you could only have, what, one, two, three, four, five nominations? Five nominations for everything. Is, is yes. it, it, it was the total yeah born ultimatum's gotta go <laughs> i'm sorry I, I can't that's just not acceptable this movie is masterfully like, edited i know editing's not like a flashy thing but there's that sequence where they're talking about the different like angles of the case and you're cutting between armstrong and toski and graysmith and avery and it's so engaging and a great way to do exposition in a way that's not more because there's a world where like it's just Gray Smith and Avery talking, or, or Toski and Armstrong, and you're like you're zoning out because it doesn't matter. But because the quick answer so perfectly, I'm so locked into what's happening. 
Yes, I would agree. I don't know how this didn't get nominated for editing. And like, I I like the Ultimatum movies, but they're action movies, and they personally, to me, feel geographically all over the place, especially during fight scenes. So I don't know. I just disagree with that take. That one, I, that one, I would wholeheartedly disagree with. Okay. And what I love of the editing of that scene, which I just kind of mentioned as well, is it shows the like control this case is exerting on everyone, where you have police officers and reporters, even when they're just walking to the coffee machine, are talking about this case and speculating. So it's not just like, a, let's bring up exposition. It's like a thematic purpose as well. Right. And think it's about so how step. Think about how static this movie is. The real only only movement that Fitcher has is pans. So you're getting a lot of static shots as the editor, and you have to make that interesting and engaging, like you said. That's hard to do. So, yeah. That's off to the editing team on this one. That's just a shame they didn't get the credit. It's a nomination. So now we're going to move on to Best Adapted Screenplay. We have No Country, There Will Be Blood, Atonement, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and Away From Her. I've never even heard of Away From Her. I'm sorry. Like, I haven't either. <laughs> I'm going to look it up right now. I think I did prior to the show and I forgot, but let me, let me do this. You, you vamp. I mean, Zodiac needs to be in there just because uh, no one, you know, <laughs> I've watched Zodiac 10 times. I've never even heard of Away From Her, and I've never heard anyone mention that movie to me once oh, and say, man, it's a man. movie about Alzheimer's. Oh, shucks. Yeah. I'm not the one to just be like, get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's getting removed, but I, I would remove so, it personally. I think this this is a crime. This didn't get this as well because, and we should also mention here, Zodiac didn't get nominated for anything. It got shut out, which is total bullshit. <laughs> and the fact that Vanderbilt, who's the only writer on this movie, I know Fitcher had a lot of input, but he's listed as the only writer, could tie together this massive decade-spanning case with all this evidence and reports and all these sort of things is such an incredible achievement, not just in like, wow, he really pulled this all together in like a, a writing way, but like to tell a thematic story within that and develop these characters and the art. It's just like, it's, it's so well done. There's screenplays, screenplays that you, that you read or you, you hear in a film that are just kind of pointing out, the story beats and then there are documents this is a document right it's it's taking so many things from the real world technically and then wrapping a story around them which is just damn near impossible to do and keep people engaged moving on to best supporting actor i think we're gonna have a, a tough conversation here this is a monster category <clears throat> we have bardem for no country we have affleck for jesse james hoffman for charlie wilson's war Paul Holbrook for Into the Wild, and Tom Wilkins for Michael Clayton. There are four supreme performances in that list. I watched Michael Clayton for this show because this is what a real dog does. He does his research. Tom Wilkinson Incredible. is unreal in Michael Clayton. He, he's he, in it for yeah. maybe 30 minutes, but boy, he, he shreds. Have you ever seen anyone convincingly lose their mind like that? It's just marvelous. Uh, my dad, when he watches The Cowboys, but that's beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> so i mean i have i'm not really in on the into the wild crowd yes yeah so, so i think i think who to remove is easy yes i think it's a pretty clear-cut choice who you put in too personally really so you think it's yeah. clear-cut we, we put ruffalo and, and downey gets nothing it's ruffalo and i really don't think it's that close he he is the closest and i know he 
some people don't want to meet the person when they're, they want, don't want that to influence their performance. He met Dave Toshi and, and did a lot of like interviews with him and rode with him and, and talked a lot. But like his performance is a police officer, dude. Like I've, gr- I grew up in a house where cops would be talking a lot, you know, talking shop or whatever it may be. He is a goddamn police officer in this movie. It's so convincing. It's one of the best detective performances I've ever seen outside of his performance in collateral, of course. <laughs> Detective Fanning, who could forget? <laughs> <laughs> I think you make a great point. And what I love about his performance as Toski is you can really go overboard with that performance because this is, like we said, Dirty Harry and Bullet and these 60s icons of, of like the cop movies that are like these cool, badass, you know, nice guys. But none of those damn movies have a scene where somebody sits down in a room, nobody says a word, and these three cops no. are grilling this guy. And it's incredible. <laughs> He looks at his watch and he says, may I see it? And he goes to look at his hand and he says, may I see it? It's just brilliant. It's just incredible. And I don't it's even so mean brilliant. that, but also like the sensitivity choice to be like, playing to Dave Toski that like, he's in this world, he's intelligent, but he's kind of, he's not tired of it, but he's like so washed out and wrung out by the end of it. Where, and I think of that scene where Graysmith calls him and his wife is explaining so much. And Ruffalo just gets up without saying a word, walks over, grabs at the phone, just hangs it up on the thing, and just walks away as he listens to jazz in his bathrobe. Gently puts it on the receiver. Doesn't slam it down. Doesn't yank it out of her hand. Just gently sets it into the receiver. Ah. And, and the fact oh, – I, I, I think you're right. I think it's got to be Ruffalo. And I, I guess we don't think twice about it, but there's some downy moments I, I want to shout out here. Just I don't know if they're improv or not, but just some unreal lines. Talking about the Zodiac to Graysmith. Me thinks our friends a tad bit in the head made me laugh out loud when I was watching the movie. It is a great line. That is incredible stuff. And then Jesus Harold Christ on rubber crutches, Bobby, what are you doing? And then he brings up the lurking word. I, um, I can't understate how good he is in this movie. I had incredible here. He's just, he's just great. But I think Ruffalo comes into this flick, like a mid season for agency signing and just becomes an automatic start in the, in the rotation. And it's like, all right, he's got total control, total class, total confidence. Totally. And I also think the thing with Downey is he gets burdened with being symbolic, right? He does start off kind of fun and light and airy, and we enjoy his jokes. And then he is the symbolic, this is what the case takes from you when he descends into alcoholism and lives on a goddamn houseboat and smokes cigarettes all day. Like, it's almost a little too on the nose with his character sometimes, whereas Tashi and Mark Ruffalo's performance to me feel like a full fleshed out human being like complexity and depth and flaws it's just great it's so freaking great i love his performance in this movie i love it by the way i went back to the into the wild wikipedia page because i was like all right well maybe like how holbrook's playing a character that i forgot he's got like two mentions in the whole plot section of that movie (laughs) total bs you could argue i mean it is a supporting actor performance so yeah but when you got one line of like yeah he meets this guy it's like get out of here I think you could argue maybe Ruffalo is too much of a best actor contender because I think he is a co-lead with this movie, not a pure supporting. But it is still a travesty he got nothing. You could say the same for Bardem and, and Affleck too. So it's not it's not to say that's true for everyone. Right. Moving on to best director. Cohen's for No Country, unquestionably. PTA for There Will Be Blood. I think he should have won this. I'm going to say this now. We'll talk about this maybe later this month. Tony Gilroy for Michael Clayton, of course. And then the last two are odd. We get Jason Reitman for Juno, 
and Julian and Schnabel for the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I haven't seen the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I've looked into it. I have seen everything else, though. I'm in the same boat as you. I've only seen bits and pieces of the Diving Bell and Butterfly thing, whatever. Um, but I think that this is a good point because we've talked about all the other movies that we that are kind of brought up. We need to talk about Juno real quick at, the, at this point. Um, uh, don't like that movie uh, as a 28-year-old man. I'm going to be honest. I don't like it. Loved it when I was younger, and it was most certainly a thing because <clears throat> came out at that. It was a huge thing, and it came out this ripe time where indie movies and Sundance were like, you know, Little Miss Sunshine. This movie they had this like kind of tender streak for a little bit, where like I, I felt like it was a sweet spot at my age to kind of get into indie movies, and it was one of those like really first like. Obviously, I loved Quentin Tarantino and stuff, but it was one of the first relevant independent movies that I had seen to to go on a run like that, to be really successful. And that that meant something to to me personally when I was growing up and watching movies and thought about making my own movies. On retrospect, I really don't think it's that great of a movie. It's borderline panhandling, I think, in, in some points. It's just... It hasn't aged well, in my opinion, so I would probably bump Juno out. And I don't think that it's doing anything from a directing standpoint that warrants a Best Directing nomination. That's what confounded me, is, like, I like that movie still. I think it's got a lot of pluses. I think it's really good, perform- really well-performed. But it's not a directing achievement where I'm like, that is an indie, like, feat. <laughs> what David Fincher does in this movie <laughs> is a directing feat. And if we're talking about the best director of a, of a year, it's total bullshit that David Fincher doesn't get many nominations for this. It's a crime. And he's, it's not just like he's a director for hire either on this movie. He, like, not to disparage other people who are, but like he comes, he's involved in this from like first draft on. <laughs> he, he's glued to this. He's, he's interviewing people with, with Vanderbilt. He's not just there for the ride and like, all right, I'll see you guys when we're starting shooting. I got my shot list and everything like that. He's integral to this movie. And I think he's just as reasonably for part of its success as anyone else. Do you think the Academy doesn't like Fincher? Because there's a couple years you could go back and look and say, and the social network didn't win. And like Mank got shut out. It didn't win anything, you know, like not best original screenplay after being adapted 60 years after it was written. No, oh, Fight Club. I mean, everybody from a critic standpoint hated that movie, but now they want to tell you that they love it. You know, down the road, that's now that everybody—that's another literally me movie. Um, like, it just seems to me that he is an—I think he's an anarchist, dude. I just think he—he he goes against the type too much. He goes against the grain too much that they don't award people like that. And let's be honest, nobody probably thought a two-hour and thirty-eight serial killer movie was going to win over there. Will be blood or no country. Let's be honest. And it shouldn't have. No, and it shouldn't have. And it's quite easy in the year 2007 with everything going on for Cormac McCarthy in an apocalyptic vision like No Country to really hold some water. I think that's why those two movies, There Will Be Blood and No Country, have endured for so long. But I just, I wonder what happened along the way. <laughs> like, did he, like, show his ass at some point? And that's why they just, he's been completely shut out his whole career as far as, you know, he's oh. been nominated a bunch, but he doesn't have anything to show for it. His nominations are for Best Director, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, and Mank. That's it. We don't get Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl, which I think... I think... Gone Girl's an incredible movie. I don't know what it is. I think he doesn't maybe make movies that are accessible 
to older people because I think in some ways he's always confronting either the old, the past, or the future. I think Benjamin Button is literally about going into the past and the future and time and all these sort of things. Zodiac is confronting the past. The social network's concerned with the future. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I haven't really seen enough. Gone Girl's a criticism of the times. Mank is another past movie. He's very much into the genre of film. And I don't know if that's or a period piece film. And I don't know if the way he approaches that is very attractive to the Academy. Yeah. He's too dark. Even in a year where no country wins best picture, he's too dark. It's just, I don't know. I'm really excited to see what he does next. And I think that I'll always be there. Like as far as his work goes, he's one of the best guys making movies, but just, He's one of the people on retrospect, when you look back, you know, we can look at Stanley Kubrick, you know, the only, the only Oscar he won was for special effects in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I mean, we went back and watched Eyes Wide Shut and Barry Lyndon and all that stuff. Those are masterpieces, right? And, and they were in their technical achievements. They're, that's my problem with the Academy. To me, sometimes it seems more like a political and popularity race than let's actually reward art and technical achievements. I think Juno is a movie that gets it because it was a movie of its time and it was a real thing. I don't know about the diving bell and the butterfly, but if I had to remove a movie, because I don't know if you could tell the story of 2007 in movies without Juno, because it was massive. Mm-hmm. So I think you could replace diving bell and the butterfly because it's a French movie and that's not to discredit, you know, wee wee, but I just think Zodiac is, is a far more achievement than either of those two movies. So whatever it would have replaced, that's fine. I'm fine with best picture with that. Best picture. This is this is. This is what frustrates me about this when I did the research. There's some of them were like, okay, that's a stack category, best supporting actor, and then we have best picture where it's like, no country, there will be blood, duh, Michael Clayton, duh, and then it's Juno and Atonement. I like Atonement a lot. It's a really solid movie. But it is not one of the best movies of that year. Not even close. Its legacy died. In 2008, basically. Like, that's the last time I think anyone's really cared about Atonement, unless you're having to read the book and watch the movie for English class nowadays. This is, this is to me, this is just, again, like, I don't know what happened. I don't know whose who's pant leg Fincher pissed on, but how does this movie not get a Best Picture nomination, you know? It's just crazy to me. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And, like, you could argue the assassin of Jesse James should have been in here over Zodiac. Or you could argue for, like, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead or Gone Baby Gone. Like, there's other movies that could have been in these other spots where it's more of an argument to me. But the fact right. it's Juno and Atonement, it's just, it's almost like a, such a slap in the face to, like, Fincher and Assassination. It's just, like, it's, it's horrible. I don't care. I'll swear, I'll swear four times today. So I, we agree that Zodiac should have been nominated for everything that it got dogged in. Is there any other technical wars you want to kind of shout out real quick? Um, just production design. Um, it's really hard to, to transport, make, make me feel transported to the 1960s. And I am, feel like I am there in this movie, which is very hard to do. I think, um, I love the nice guys. It's a great movie. A lot of times where I can tell that we're in Atlanta in, in 2017. Oh, yeah. It, you know what I mean? It's just, or, or take your pick. Uh, you know, I, the, this movie and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, have two of the best set and production designs I've ever seen. 
I wanted to shout out this before we get to Colonel Tom Parker. Great soundtrack. Tremendous, tremendous music in this movie. I love how inappropriate it is, and let me explain that, right? The punctuating piano of Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, it plays at inappropriate times. It plays when Robert Graysmith goes into his home and realizes that his family's gone. It plays when he's... Plays when he's in the office putting pieces together of, of the puzzle. It, it, it's not the score doesn't come on when the killer's playing. It's all diegetic. It's music that's playing on the person's car, or there's no music at all. It's like this slow descent into madness. It's like these like pricks. I don't know. It's just so well done. It goes to I think that point you make about how it's not really when the killer's on. It's more about when the case is like heating up. It's another way that the movie tells you that's what it's more concerned about. If Zodiac is still alive in 2007, I think this movie's trying to say to him, we don't give a shit about you. We give a shit about the people that you hurt. And I think the soundtrack and, and the use of that piano really emphasizes it because there's the dread of, like, this is what it's doing to people and not what he did. And it's just it's just great work. I've heard Hurdy Gurdy Man playing the last couple of days. I've always loved that song because of this movie. The credits, and then this time I realized it was in the very beginning of the movie, and there's now this thematic pull to that of like Mike Majot hears that when all of a sudden he sees this woman get killed and he gets shot and attacked, and now at the very end it comes back because once he identifies Alan, these memories come with it too, and it Incredible. all starts on that night in uh, Blue Rock Springs, I believe, and that's why this song comes up again is because it's just sending us all the way back to the start of like all these questions. I mean, to, to kind of add credence to what you're saying, too, is as much as Paul is a shell of himself at the end, he completely disarms Zodiac. He basically calls him a loser, you know, like, you yes. know, <laughs> <laughs> this whole lore and falling like not in love with somebody who commits these crimes, but like being so fascinated that you sacrifice your own life and your family life for somebody to just be like, look, this guy is a loser. He's a complete psychopath <laughs> cons people the fact that he murdered them as if like he scored like 50 points in a game he's like he acts like he's kobe in a press conference in 2008 when it's like no dude you murdered defenseless people right and then try to add some like like meaning to it right with the coda and like the deciphering yes. the, the the puzzles and stuff like that it's like this is just a, a maniac rambling this isn't give himself anything a name special of, like i'm the zodiac yeah like you're exactly. you're just a dope. Exactly. Speaking of dopes, there's a dope that might get nominated this year in Best Supporting Actor. His name's Tom Hanks for Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis. We got a top of the Colonel Tom Parker Award for this movie. Now there's a lot of ways we can approach this this week. You could either go with the best just like guy comes in, drops a couple like thirty points, Brian Cox comes to mind, or we can go with the real odd choices. There's a couple. I don't know where you want to go with this. Do you need help, Sam? That was my Brian Cox for the show. I won't do it again. I have a doctor, Sam. He <laughs> helped crack my back, and now my headaches are gone. My headaches are all gone. Um, <laughs> I have. I kind of think I have a clear-cut Colonel Tom Parker. Okay. I want to yeah. hear it. I think it's the guy who does the Zodiac's voice. It's oh, just... that is a great call. It's just so over the top. It seems like it's something out of like <laughs> Psycho or out of like a Freddy movie. It's just like uh, I get headaches. Uh, it's just can you be creepy and act like a serial killer? I think that stinks. <laughs> I mean, I think I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think they might have used the actual audio 
from that. Didn't. Like, okay, so they didn't. Okay. So I was going to say, I don't know if we can give the Colonel Tom Parker Award to just like an insane man, because that's who that was. So that's that's good for us. Yeah. I have a couple of candidates. we got Michael Majot, the guy who plays him. When he goes, yeah. and die. I was like, That's awful. And she looks at him and goes, die like yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like whoa <laughs> buddy we have sandy panzarella he's got a bowl cut and he helps tell the down. <laughs> he's not don cheney but he's just like he's got two seeds and just like oh yeah i remember me this time when we said this oh, i'm gonna call the cops what do you, what do you mean the watch oh. he's like he's the guy who you know Somebody's like mailbox gets smashed and he's instantly snitching. He's got, you know, well, Thomas told me he had a bat that he wanted to smash that mailbox with. Just like, stop snitching, yeah. man. Come on. Sandy just, just, just does nothing for me. And he's got like a kind of pivotal part in the movie is turning the investigation back onto Lee. True. My final candidate was Duffy. He takes over Paul Avery's office and then he's all snark and, and like no subtlety. He's like, oh yeah, okay, Grice, man. Like Adam Rothberg, I believe is the actor. Just, just, yeah, just you just don't need to be in this movie. We don't need that character. He's not that good. Yeah, I mean, I, his his best moment was saving Private Ryan. It should probably stay that way. <laughs> so, where do you want to go? You want to give it to the guy? The I'm gonna kill those kids. I think it's Sam. Yeah, the Zodiac caller. It's just it's just too on the nose. Like, yeah. I w- I was a little scared you were talking about the the first scene where we have the call to the actual police department because that scene is, is chilling where he goes goodbye right which is actually again not the real audio but the um dispatcher nine one one dispatcher says that is exactly how I spoke Sam. to her okay so so we're, 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 we're for going, that one. Sam congratulations Sam <laughs> I think I think he's going to be the only Colonel Tom Parker Award winner to not actually see his face uh, he's true. Really, really proud of himself for that yep. Nick I you got a thing called the notebook you take a bunch of notes copious notes do, right I do. Okay. okay um I love how this movie goes to such great lengths to keep the identity of the zodiac vague but still has a clear idea of who it thinks it is that's just fantastic stuff um, I believe there's three actors in each of the scenes that Zodiac is in, and they're portrayed by a different person every time. Marvelous. I think that's awesome. I love how he's shot in the shadows. We don't really get to see his face, etc. There's a great, no a great touch too to not have just like John Carroll Lynch play that person. In, like, way yes. Uh, another note that I had in here, we kind of talked about this, but I just thought it's interesting. An hour in, and the Zodiac is gone. In a macabre way, we ask, "What next?" Almost in some weird way, wanting him to strike again. So he's almost more likely to be caught. We're also enthralled and ask ourselves, how could someone do that? Then actively seek the answer for that question by quote unquote, cracking the case ourselves, a delusion that can never be fulfilled. Great. Great stuff. Uh, what else fun stuff do I have in here? It's like, what else do I have in there's fun stuff after this, like deliberation? I'm like, man, this, this is horrific. <laughs> Um, I love Avery's deterioration, just the things you lose to obsession. Um, and then it goes right to Robert basically doing the same thing, ignoring his wife, foreshadowing, foreshadowing his same exact fate. Uh, again, just I love Chloe Sevigny's line of, it was just one great first date. Um, love, the, love the framing for the Allen interrogation, how the three men have him enclosed. And it's not what they're saying that really incriminates him. It's all the looks of like, look at the boots. Look at the watch. He says he would look forward to the day that police officers aren't called pigs anymore. It's just all these really subtle things. And then, like, I love the thing, too, where 
this great direction where <clears throat> Arthur Lee Allen, or John Carroll Lynch, who plays him in the movie, really maintains his composure throughout the whole entire movie. He doesn't really get rattled as as no. supposed killer. That's one moment where he says, the knives that were in my trunk, that blood was from a chicken. Yes. Then Malinax looks at him and says, what are you talking about? Says, well, I thought he might have been spooked, but the, and then he just kind of stumbles over words and he's like, okay, well, look into that as well. But just that like one moment of subtlety. That scene neighbor is, saw that. He's dead now. Yes. Yes. It's so masterfully done and just excellent, excellent writing. Um, we talked about the score, how it feels like it's played at inappropriate times, things like that. Love the opening shot going through the neighborhood. Like you were talking about, the soundtrack is killer. Easy to be hard by Three Dog Night. Love the deep cuts. Um, but yeah, like Memories of Murder, I thought this is a fascinating approach to what the what what we hold on to, obsession, and how we draw conclusions. It's also a technical masterpiece to boot. Gets better with every view. That's all I got. All right. Is this David Fincher's best movie? Let's get to the hard-hitting questions. <sighs> I said this earlier, and I think it still stands. I think it is his greatest achievement. Technically, I do not think it's his best movie. Okay. So our contenders before you tell us, Seven, Fight Club, Zodiac, Social Network, Gone Girl, Mank. I think those are the five major ones we're talking about here. Would you agree or are you going off the board? Oh, I, I, think, you got, I think you got them all. Okay. So what, what's your pick? Okay, I'm going to answer this question in three ways. Hey. Personal favorite, the one I love to watch it's a total bro movie. It's a total literally me movie. It's not it's well. I still love Fight Club. <laughs> I read that book when I was in high school. It introduced me to a whole kind of new brand of literature with Chuck Palahunik, stuff like that. I just was really influential for me. So that movie holds a special place in my heart. I don't think it's his best movie. I don't even really think it's a good movie, but I really like it. Um, his technical achievement and I think his greatest work, Zodiac. Spirit One's a social network. The only Jesse Eisenberg performance I like, I think it's an incredible movie, and uh, I think it's his most meaningful movie, and I don't mean that in the sense that there's a lot of heart and stuff in that movie, but it's the one that captures the most of what society in present time is like. Mm -hmm. I'm on the flip opinion. Zodiac is my favorite. I think The Social Network is his best movie. And Mm -hmm. I think and this is no discredit to James Vanderbilt, but the social network is him and Aaron Sorkin on a rich topic that is going to like be relevant to society for 30 years. We're already in year, what, 15 or something over the Facebook slash better, whatever you want to call it. That's what, yeah, that's that, why I picked it too. That movie is just dynamite. And like the performance he gets out of them, Andrew Garfield, Eisenberg, even, when you get a good performance out of Justin Timberlake, Pat yourself on the back, you know? Performance is not good. <laughs> but it's I think fine. what I think even more so than Zodiac, and that is a movie that is 100% dependent on dialogue. There's no, there's no action in that movie, right? So, yeah, I think that's probably... you probably I don't think it's his, his finest technical achievement. I think that's definitely this, but probably his best movie is Social Network. I think Mindhunter could have been one of his best achievements, but unfortunately, we only got two seasons of that. He was essentially a showrunner for that. Yeah, so, we're also a little we're also a little divided on that show second season and some of the choices. So. Yeah, we're also just twisted people who are like, man, I love that Mindhunter show about. Wish I wish I knew what happened to that BTK fella. 
you know, in the words of uh, Lancaster Dodd from the Master, we're just two messenger pi- messenger pigeons lost along the way. Considering Iron Man came out two thousand eight, is this the last year before movies are just like completely different? Or is this is this the last gasp of an era? Do you think this is the last year where? Tourists are given the money. Yes. <laughs> now the budget not, like, goes. Much to us. to talk about with that one. There isn't, and we do this every podcast too, which is quite frankly pretty redundant. We sound like two old men, but it's the truth. I'm glad we went out with a bang. Is the best way I can say it. You know, hmm. I, I think this movie is just impeccable, and that's not to say 2008 doesn't have a lot of good movies. We haven't had a ton since, but we will never see a, a year like this. This is one of the other questions I really wanted to ask. What is the legacy of this movie 2022? You talked about it earlier in the show when we first kind of opened of the way it's changed in your mind and what you, you've thought about it and how you approach it differently. But what do you think is the legacy of this movie? So I was reading a poll recently, and I don't know where it ranked, but this movie was in like the top 15 <clears throat> for movies of like the, the 2000s or whatever it was. My feeling for this movie is much like the case itself it it really only lives on with the people who care about it <laughs> there's a finite there's a, there's a niche audience who actually want to see this movie and actually care about the zodiac case i've brought up this to a couple people recently and some people didn't even really know who the zodiac was which is kind of disheartening but just like Ooh. time things fade away and i think this is still just kind of the case for this movie it's it's got its fan base, it's got its supporters, it's got its people who think that it was obviously completely critically snubbed, which is us. I don't think that there's like it's reaching a wide base. I don't think that there's a lot of intrigue anymore behind this case, sadly. It's most of the people involved with it have passed on. I agree. I think this movie... I don't know. I don't know what the pure intention of this movie were. I think part of it is... We think it's a fascinating story. I know Vanderbilt has, you know, echoed that idea. But I think part of this movie being made is also these people wanted to catch this person. And much like Graysmith, who wanted to release the book and compile all this information in the hopes that something would trigger something. I wonder if this movie was almost like, hey, it's 2007. Not everyone's gone quite yet. You know, Dave Tossey's still around at this point. Robert Graysmith. I think Bill Armstrong is still alive at this point. Paul Avery is dead, I want to say, unfortunately. Yeah, he passed on. But there's still a plethora of people who are still alive that want to get an answer to this before they go. And I wonder if this movie was hoping it would kind of jumpstart that fascination again and maybe re-trigger an interest in the case. And it has, but not, I think, it didn't result in the way I think they maybe wanted it to, in a way. Right. I think that kind of echoes what you said about Memories of Murder, too, earlier, with Bong not really knowing... You know, at that point, the killer hadn't been caught, not really knowing enough about the crimes specifically, where the end of that movie kind of leaves you saying the same thing. Hey, someone, maybe even you watching this movie is out there and knows what happened. The only reason I would say this movie, um, only reason I would say this movie kind of lacks in that department is it feels a little too procedural and not personal enough for me to buy into that. I never I don't feel I don't feel attached to any of these characters. I love Mark Ruffalo's performance. I'm intrigued by his import performance. I'm not I'm not attached to his performance. We never meet a family member of a victim for the most part outside of I think Darlene's sister at the very very end. And she's in jail. <laughs> and the brief moments we have with with Dave Toski's wife and even Chloe Sevigny are very very brief and like 
there's no real meat to it of like, hey, this is what it's done to our family. It's more of what it's done to the person. Exactly. Um, but I have a, a little bit of a different answer of the legacy of this movie. And I guess it's more about the legacy of the case. And this is a very circuitous road. So, so bear with me. Two weeks ago was the 59th anniversary of the John F. Kennedy assassination, which Nick and I had talked about earlier. It has always intrigued us. It's the two things that I keep coming back to in life of like, before I leave this earth, I would love to know the answer to those two things more than probably anything else. And a couple of, of weeks ago, my friends had asked me, because they know I'm kind of into that whole world and that era, how do you think the world would be different if JFK had survived? And of course, when I mentioned Vietnam and Cuba and civil rights and the space race and housing, the biggies. But one thing I've always thought regarding JFK and if he'd survived is that conspiracy theories don't exist. Or at the least, they wouldn't be as commonplace as they are now. So much of the culture of the conspiracy theory comes from the JFK assassination, the question, well, what happened? We at the Road Dogs aren't going to answer that question. That's not to 132 of the podcast where we talk about JFK by Oliver Stone. But, you know, I genuinely think so much of the cynicism and conspiracy that are now just ever-present in our world, whether you want to look at politics, commonplace, even memes now. There's, there's a 9-11 memes that are all about the conspiracy of what happened. They all began on that day in Dallas in 1963 because people couldn't understand how a wife-abusing asshole killed the most powerful man on the planet. And I think Zodiac and the popular conspiracy theories are very much touched with that phenomena. And I don't think conspiracy theories even go as much further as they do without the Zodiac killer and the craze around him. There are so many theories, some more valid than others, that try and answer what happened to these five victims. And I think that's good. Pursuit of justice should never have an expiration date. You know, it's good that we're still pursuing this. But Zodiac's legacy and a reminder to the audience is that sometimes chasing a truth like this, especially a dangerous one, is as damaging to your sanity as it is to any sort of addiction. You know, people need to find out why and who did this to make sense of these murders when there is none, which goes back to your whole idea, Nick, of trying to find something in anarchy when there just is none. And I think back to a line that Toski has that we haven't shattered out is, I can't tell if I want it to be Alan so bad because I actually thought it was him or I just want this all to be over. And 100%. that notion of people yes. scratching themselves and working to find an answer the way Graysmith does in the end, something they can't solve just because they want this pain to end, felt incredibly timely to me. Think of Graysmith when he's interviewing um, Darlene's sister. It was Lee. Say it. Just say it was Lee. Because he just needs it to be over. He needs it to be over. Yes. Ah, so great. Right. I love Graysmith that. Graysmith in real life has gone back to this book and he's written a second book since the original Zodiac, Zodiac Unmasked, because he's still obsessed with this case because he doesn't have an answer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and he's not even a person that was really involved with what happened here. It's just this fascination of, like, the American people need to have an answer to some things or else they just won't, and they can't rest. And I found that incredibly timely. And It's just... Uh... It's a timeless it's a timeless conversation whether like you said it's about politics whether it's about a serial killer we 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 demand answers as a culture and it's it's a strange strange thing to demand answers from something that just has has none we got to demand a couple more answers before we leave the show and end this podcast we're going to deck getting really good with the segues i love it thank you thank you sir you want to start with Jake Gyllenhaal? Where, where do you want to go with this? You want to start Gyllenhaal, Fincher, or Ruffalo? Those are our three this week. Start Jakey G. We haven't talked about him on the show, and I love him to death. So let's start with oh, Gyllenhaal. Yeah. 
Starts out hot. October Sky, 1990s, 99. Donnie Darko, 2001. And then just ascends pretty much from there. Brokeback, Jarhead, Proof, Zodiac, Brothers are ending his, 2000, or his 2000s. 2010, we have Love and Other Drugs, Prince of Persia. But then we get, we, get the, we get the hits. Source Code, great movie. End of Watch, great movie. Enemy, great movie. Prisoners, great movie. Nightcrawler, incredible movie. And one of the best, best performances of that decade. Southpaw, he's pretty good. He's pretty hot. You know, I'll, I'll throw that caveat in there. Nocturnal Animals, weird but good. You understand that movie? No, I have no idea what the hell that movie's about. I've seen Nocturnal Animals three times. I really enjoy it. I think it's cool that Tom Ford directed a movie. I have no idea what that movie's trying to say. Relationships are bad and people hurt you. I've got so many questions. (laughs) Yeah, apparently. It's just like, man, Amy Adams, not cool to Army Hammer. It's like, well, sorry, kid. Oakjaw is where it starts to get weird. And then he gets back on the wagon with Stronger. Wildlife, which I don't know if you've seen. It's the Paul Dana, Zoe Kazan movie that they made in 2018 he's so good in that movie okay and then this is where things get really interesting to me and this is what i kind of want to talk about with jill and hall his next three movies that i have written down here are spider-man where he plays mysterio the guilty which we both really liked and then ambulance and now he's in a pixar movie called strange world which is bombing at the box office and he's 41 he's slated for a couple movies next one is called the prophet which has a bonkers description, which I will read to you, Nick. In the film, John Prophet volunteers for a German experiment at the end of World War II in order to feed his family. After a bombing buries him alive and traps him underground for 20 years, he reawakens in 1965, where things are not great for Prophet. The world has moved on without him. His daughter resents him, and KGB agents are after him to recreate super soldiers from his blood. Yeah. I mean, if that's an original screenplay, I don't know if that's based off a comic book. It's based off a couple of books. Okay, I was gonna say if that I was gonna say if that's an original idea, I mean that's pretty pretty ambitious. I respect it, but if it's based off it's of something, tab of LSD right. idea right there. That's what yeah. I said. Almost as good as Horse Tucker. <laughs> and then after that, he's got two action-sounding movies about a soldier being left behind in Afghanistan and having to fend for his life. He's in the Roadhouse reboot, and then he's gonna play Robert Evans and Francis in The Godfather. I'm I'm just kind of curious what you make of all this. I am so sick and tired and tired and sick of people making making ofs the Godfather. Stop it. No more. I don't want to see it anymore. I'm I'm gonna get passionately mad for the first time on this show. It's a classic masterpiece. We all know enough about it. We don't need a movie and a ten hour show about it. Over that. That's pissing me off. Stop putting money towards that. Wow. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. I'm getting very. You're just. I love Jake Gyllenhaal, but stop that! Stop making those movies. Yeah. Stop making those projects. Now let's talk about Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is one of my favorite actors of all time. I feel like we've grown up together almost. I know he's 41, and I'm only like almost 30. But like, I saw Donnie Darko when I was around like the age he is in that movie, and I and I love that movie. It just holds a special place in my heart. I think it's really interesting. I think it's a powerful. Um, so you're head over heels for him. <laughs> I would say it's one of those movies that sh- that is powerful in the sense that it lives off of the screen. You know, there was a website, there was a book, there was like a lot of theories around that movie. It's great performance by him, especially at a young age. Uh, I love Brokeback Mountain. It's an incredible movie. I think he did a lot of really earnest and meaningful work in the early 2000s, which is interesting. 
Uh, it usually seems to go the other way. And then just, you know, like you said, the 2010s, he just starts to become likable. But there's still incredible work in here. You know, he links up with Denny Villanueva, does Enemy, Prisoners. His performance as Loki is probably my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal performance of all time. A lot of choices going on there, physical, doing a lot of things, but he's great in it. Uh, yeah, he's very versatile. Which seems to play someone damaged or broken. He seems to have the Gosling thing where their emotions are very internal and like he laughs eccentric, he moves eccentrically, he looks odd like at people. It's just a lot of physical stuff with Jill and Hall that I love. I uh I love him too. I I just don't know what he's doing right now. I, I think he's chasing the bag and that's fine. I think it's a common theme we've talked about through Decade Decider with a lot of the movies we've talked about, because invariably the drama star becomes the action star for at least a little bit, but it, it's, I, I, he's so good. and so talented. I just wish he put more of his focus on that. And this is another redundant point uh, in the podcast. Just, he's a guy who could do anything. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, why are we going to roadhouse for, for JJ? Like, I just, I've heard ambulance is fun. I just haven't watched it. And, and I've heard he's good in it. It's just, um, Come back to us. Come back to, to Prisoners, Joan Hall, and Stronger Joan Hall, and, and Wildlife, and all these other great movies. He, from what I've read, too, seems like someone who throws himself against the wall. He is so open to where we've talked about other actors and other directors who are very selective, right? Their filmography is not as deep because they want to work with specific people at specific times when it works for them. He's someone who's like, I'll work with anybody and I'll take on any role, kind of like Ethan Hawke has talked about. And I do respect that, right, in the same regard as... I would play Loki in Prisoners, but I also am okay to laugh at myself and be Mysterio in Spider-Man. So there is something kind of noble about that, right? Being able to kind of wear all those hats. But I agree with you. At this age, I would like to see him do more dramatic roles. The thing is, the guy's in incredible shape. Like, I don't know if you, like anybody on this podcast has watched Southpaw. The man is dreamy in that movie, and he's absolutely ripped. So he has the body to play those roles for another 10 years. It is so weird to watch Zodiac in some ways because you see he's like almost like a baby. He's like a deer in the woods. And then he, he just becomes like this huge man. And like, I, I don't know. It's just odd that Joan Hall is a guy that I, I adore. And at one point I was like, he should be the next Batman. And, you know, because I think he has that, that gravitas to him. And, and now I don't want him to go to do Batman. Because <laughs> we're running out of the prime of his, you know, like mid mid like career action leading man start time so right what decade oh that was weird <laughs> uh i'm gonna take the 2000s really i mean i love jarhead i love brokeback mountain donnie darko zodiac yeah. yeah i can't i can't give up those movies i'm gonna pick 2010s i saw prince of persia in theaters shout out i'm sorry <laughs> I, I didn't understand it at the time still quite don't I love wildlife. I'll pick it for that. I think Enemy Prisoners Nightcrawler is an incredible one, two, three. It's like mm. a, it's like an artist coming into like an album, just be like, "Hey, first three tracks, just just glorified, insane." You know, it's like starting. It's like listening to the first three tracks of Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. You've got "Rip This Joint," "Shake Your Hips," "Rocks Off." You can't. Those those are all no skips. Yeah. One of the first three tracks of the, of the Road Dogs, you know. Yes. Just a suite right of talent. <laughs> so on to David Fincher. We'll be a little brief with this because we already touched on a lot of this. Um, don't know where he is and what he what he's doing anymore in Hollywood. Another guy whose career is kind of in, in limbo more than Joan. An Hall. anarchist. 
Anarchist, yes. dude. He's got a movie called The Killer coming up next by Michael Fassbender, which he's been wanting to make since 2007, about a hitman that develops a conscience. It's his first movie in three years and only his third movie in the last nine years. So I um, I don't know what his place is anymore in, in Hollywood because I think he's a masterful director that is now working for Netflix for the most part. I'm not sure he's someone who's more at home in, in TV miniseries where he can really have full control over something for an extended period of time. Or if he's just someone that's going to be making movies every five to ten years. Do you like Mank? I haven't seen Mank is the problem because that okay. topic doesn't fascinate me. But Okay. It's a really great movie, and it's an interesting production history if you read about it. His father, Jack Fincher, wrote the script, and then he adapted it, which is really cool. But uh, I think that's the direction where we're headed. Budget, period pieces, on Netflix. Maybe something in the present day with the killer, because I think that's modern modern day, right? Isn't that based on a comic as well? Yeah. So I, I think maybe that maybe that turns into a, a trilogy or something like that. It'd be really cool to see Fassbender in more movies. I'd really like He's to see him back, do more. baby. I don't know, but um, yeah, I really don't know. That's a great question. I think he's, I think he's a Netflix guy for for the next whatever years until they kick him out. <laughs> it's so odd because I think God Girl, which is one of my favorite Fincher movies, I remember that movie being like a big deal. In, in don't the, like that movie. One of your worst takes. I understand. I know. I don't. I just don't like it. That movie made $369 million at the box office. Absurd. It's a great movie. It is an incredible achievement. But it's just like, I think if that movie was made today, it'd be on Netflix. So we're we're going back to that corner of of sadness and like redundancy. But I'm very interested where he goes with that said, where are you going with the decades? We got got five movies in the 1990s. We got three in the 2000s. Mm. And it was like six properties in the 2010s. I'm going to take the 2010s. Yeah, I like a lot of the stuff in the '90s, but it's it it doesn't outweigh the quality of the tents. Then we lose Zodiac, which sucks. <laughs> well, we're not annihilated from history. It's not gone. It's just, you know, <laughs> I know. It's just picking. It's arbitrary. No one cares. <laughs> I'll pick 2010s for Mindhunter. I'll pick Mindhunter, Gone Girl, Social Network, and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is like elite works. Yeah, I love the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think that's his most underrated movie. Under Ruffalo, not not a whole lot to say about Mark Marky Mark Ruffalo here. Consistently great. I think he's one of Hollywood's best actors, who is thought of as just the role he plays every now and again as the Hulk, which is a real travesty. Mm-hmm. Hasn't really stopped him from that. I, there's one project I want to shout out because I know it's personal to both of us. I know this much is true. Mm-hmm. I I love the hell out of that movie or that TV series. It is terrific. Mm-hmm. He's wonderful in it. And I. Uh, I hope he keeps making great work. I do too. And what I love about him is <laughs> the only way Mark Ruffalo works in a Marvel movie is if he's computer generated, right? The options for him are drama, which which I love. So you get a lot of great work. It's not a lot of just, you know, incredible Hulk or stuff like that. His performance in Foxcatcher is absolutely amazing. That's a movie I want to do on this podcast that I thought was completely just underseen, and I think he's great in that movie. It's probably Channing Tatum's best performance. He's awesome in Shutter Island. The kids are all right. He's really good in that movie. Like, Eternal Sunshine. Like, he's he's never bad. You know, he's never the reason a movie doesn't work. Even in The Adam Project, which I watched for some stupid, stupid reason, not as bad as the movie I watched last night, which was Black Adam. Holy. 
Um, <laughs> even in the Adam product, he's good. He has like a really nice heart and a meaty role of this father whose son go back in time to try and help him and looks at his grown up son and is like, Oh, I, I, I die and I leave you. And, and it's, he's just terrific in everything he does. It's national treasure. Protect Mark Ruffalo at all costs. I mean, I think Detective Fannin is the role that he'll always be remembered for in Collateral, but, you know, what are you going to do? Goatee and uh, hoop earring. Uh, oh, it's just undefeated. Back ponytail. Like, he's suddenly playing a Hispanic man for some reason out of nowhere. Yeah. Just, just absurd stuff. Yeah. Which, where are you going with this? He's in Mickey 7 next, by the way, from Bong Joon-ho. He's in another miniseries called All the Light We Could Not See. He's in the post-production movie called Poor Things, which is the next year's worst Lanthimos most movie. We're, we're in good good work with Mark, but... I, I totally agree. I, the thing is, to me, is only thing that makes this... This one a little tougher, but makes this category more fun is he's never the lead. He's, 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 he's secondary for the most part. I mean, this is probably the closest he gets to a lead performance outside of some other stuff with I Know This Much Is True, which is a TV show. Yes. So it's kind of hard to pick because some of these movies I'm not a huge fan of, but I love him in them. Um, so I'll probably take the 2010s. Because I think Foxcatcher gives him a lot, a lot, a lot of fat to chew. And he's great in that. So I think I agree with you only because it's not till Zodiac where he really gets the pop that he deserves. So by that and process of elimination, there's just nothing else. You could maybe right. go with 2020s. I think he's in for a very strong future, but... I agree with you. It's going to be the 2010s for Mark Ruffalo. And that's going to be it for us, Nick. I think that was the most we've agreed on Decade Decider. That was pretty impressive. Well, I mean, when you you got two superstars like us, it's just, you know, sometimes stars collide. <laughs> Josh, as always, great time doing this with you. Um, I would reveal my pick for next week, but I just don't know what it is yet. So we'll leave that part of mystery. Dogs out. <laughs>